everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 375. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span and Bix. We got a really, really, really fun show this week, I think, as we're going back to the 80s, and we have a great guest. But first off, before we get going, we got to talk about that Patreon show. But first off, how are you doing this week? I'm doing okay. All right, that's good to hear. All right, so yes, we had a new Patreon show drop uh, in the recent days here and um it's our latest one the uh, part two of our look at the 2000 sale of wcw well negotiations for a sale of wcw where we talk about eric bischoff and all the various investors that he had going for it vincent man the world was federation getting involved and almost buying the company at that point in time and uh, other things going on there. We talk about Lenita Erickson and all the stuff there behind the scenes where we dig into the Nitro book for uh, vivid details of that. And uh, all kinds of other stuff involving the trades, newsletters, all that stuff. So if you like the 2001 shows we did last year on the Fusion uh, negotiations, and if you like part one, you'll love part two. So find all the month for patreon.com slash twin the sheets. And Folks, get in because the next three shows, October, November, December, the next three months will be 25 years of Montreal. Oh, boy. And we've already started that sh- recording that the first show, and it's already crazy as it is as we uh, start talking about Brett's uh, agreeing to terms with WCW. We even delve into what Bret Hart uh, did the year earlier with negotiation with Eric Bischoff and Vince McMahon's buyer's remorse a year later and all kinds of stuff. So, folks, you definitely want to get in on this. $5 a month gets you access to all the audio, audio that we have done in our now six full years of the Patreon as we start year seven on this latest show. So, patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right. Now, let's get to this week's show. As we are discussing the week that was October 5th through 11th, 1988, and... We had a big thing going on that week that we have a guest here that was part of as we get into the nose. So we are glad to be joined again by one of our dear friends, the first person ever bought tapes from online, (laughs) a true legend in the wrestling tape trading world, and also a pretty good damn podcaster himself. We are joined by the one, the only, the legend, John McAdam. John, welcome back. Chris, thank you very much for having me back. It's it's good to be back. I We haven't talked in like a year, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. One thing I want to throw in really quickly, um, you mentioned the Bret Hart Montreal thing, and the, the 25th anniversary is coming up. And just in general, if you think Montreal, you dear listener, if you think Montreal was a work, you're nuts. I'm sorry. <laughs> there is just a mountain of evidence that it was not a work and not a shred of evidence that it was a work and you, you, in wrestling you you do a work to make money in theory right i know there are some people 25 years ago kind of made a mess out of that but the idea is that is to go out and make money off the work and if you want to make money off the montreal thing what you do is you have bret hart go to wcw do his three years and come right back bret hart would have no part of it so i mean you know that's just another brick on the pile well, also, and Vince was trying to babyface himself right after. Yeah, it eventually led to Mr. McMahon, but he was trying to babyface himself in the immediate aftermath. So he was not trying to make money. That is an excellent point. Well, if there was no Austin, he would have never done baby. He never would have, you know, turned heel. So there's all that, too. 
but yeah, yeah, we're you know, yeah, <laughs> it definitely was no damn work, that's for sure. <laughs> so uh, yeah, three months of this, folks. So get ready for it. But anyway, let's talk about 1988, shall we? And we're gonna begin the show with a different type of topic, and it's not involving any wrestling organization on its own, but it involves a fan wrestling organization in a way. And we start with Dave Meltzer. Before starting this report, I'd like to advise anyone who thought about going to the UAWF convention held last weekend in Memphis, but decided against it for whatever reason not to make the same mistake twice. I've been to conventions of this type before and to Crockett Cups, which in many ways are similar because of the large number of fans who travel from around the country, but this definitely took the cake. I don't want to make this sound like a commercial, but if you want a fun weekend to make arrangements to attend next year's, whenever the details come out. Technically, the UAWF... Dave didn't go to next year's. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? Well, <laughs> Chicago ended yeah. up being a bit of a clusterfuck, so... That was probably for the best. It was still fine. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, the UAWF, the United Association of Wrestling Fans, is a group started by John Gallagher, who puts up the Wrestling Forum newsletter. This was the first get-together of the group, which was formed at the beginning of the year, and it's kind of taken over in many people's eyes from the WFIA, the Wrestling Fans International Association, which was formed in 1967, and held annual conventions almost every year throughout la- through last year. I don't want to get involved in the politics between the two groups because supposedly both will hold conventions next year. And with typical competitive silliness, it wouldn't surprise me that they wind up going head-to-head with one another. But that's another story. There was a lot of discontentment at the final WFIA convention last year in Birmingham. I myself received at least a dozen complaining letters. And Gallagher decided to put together a similar group to arrange an annual convention. But that would be more receptive to the membership. Don't get me wrong. There were a few beginner mistakes, but I haven't talked to even one person who thought the overall thing wasn't a major success. A few flaws be worked out, and I guess there is some controversy as to the direction this group will wind up, and there was some criticism, most of it constructive, on the last day to help make next year's convention as good. I can't foresee it being any more fun. One of John's ideas, which went over very well, was introducing a wrestling ring of immortals, apparently because someone had copyrighted the idea of a wrestling hall of fame. Funny, funny to read that. He had to make the semantics change. Several of the members voted, and the first class of inductees wound up being wrestlers Lutez and Bruiser Brody, promoter Sam Mushnick and Vince McMahon Sr., announcer Boy Pierce, and managers Wild Redberry and Ernie Roth, the Grand Wizard, Abdullah Farouk, Jay Wellington Ratcliffe, and numerous other pseudonyms. I believe the eligibility rules were that to be eligible, one had to be retired for five years. Or in the case of Brody, an agent Adonis who was also eligible but didn't get the required votes, a so-called Roberto Clemente rule was put into effect. Clemente was a famous baseball star who died while on the Mercy Mission, and they waived the five-year retirement rule to induct him in immediately into the Hall of Fame. I'm not sure which category Bore Pierce fell into since he retired only two years back, and he definitely isn't dead. But he deserves some sort of award for both the stories he was telling and also for being around the wrestling business for as long as he's been and being so involved with it and still being as much of a fan of it, of it as you and I are. I think the industrial standard should be changed a bit, however, because it seemed in comparison with the wrestlers that it was too easy for the promoters and managers to get a spot. If two promoters and two managers made the grade, then there should have been a good half a dozen a dozen wrestlers make it as well. No complaints about anyone who did, of course. In a sense, it was probably good to show how exclusive this thing should be. The only Dez and Brody made it the first time out, 
but we'll work on it more next year. All right, we're going to stop here before we get more of this. Isn't this interesting to read the to read about this and read Dave's thoughts on how this went, and then what we have eight years later when Dave creates the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame? John, what are your memories of how all this was handled here? Well, let, let's be honest. If you agreed to come, you were going to get some sort of an award. And that's where all that came from. You know, Chris, you mentioned the WFIA. I have never been to a WFIA convention, but I have been told by a credible source that it basically was a place where the fans did drugs with the wrestlers. And it, yet, you know, <laughs> I, I don't partake in that. And it's just something that I wouldn't want to be part of. And the UAWF convention was, I mean, it was so much fun. I can't wait to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, Bix, what are your thoughts on uh on the, the this, you know, uh ring of immortals here that uh they did in this first turn and uh how how this was done compared to what the Hall of Fame would be like in the Observer eight years later? Well, first, real quick, I did check because I was curious if someone had actually trademarked professional wrestling Hall of Fame or anything like that, like was said here, and there was a trademarked f- filed by W-A-Y-L-I, Inc. Corporation in Glenview, Illinois, in 1974, and then formally registered, finishing the process in 76. Doesn't say when it died, but I'm guessing that's the thing in question, so that it does appear to be legitimate. Um, I'm guessing Dave's point of view is changed by WWF and WCW starting theirs. Probably so. And also the growth of The Observer. In the meantime, yeah, because the Observer in 1996 is totally different than the Observer here in 1988. But uh, before before I get into more of the ceremony and stuff that's going on here, this is it's it's an interesting thing to talk about here because this is how different the world was pre-internet, John. I mean, nowadays you know you could have like you know Facebook groups and. This, that, and the other on social media. But if you wanted to, you know, uh, trade stuff with wrestling fans and stuff like that, you had to be part of this type of deal, like a UAWF or WFIA. And then when they would have their yearly meeting or whatever, you, this is where you go and meet up with them. I mean, it was a it was a cool thing to do to meet up with people from around the world at these events. It it really was cool, and I knew some people coming in, um, you know, that I had already met friends of mine from Philadelphia, and but yeah, it was totally cool getting to meet fans. Literally, I, I don't think anyone came in from outside of the United States or Canada. I could be wrong, but I mean, I'm, I'm you know hanging out with people from Toronto. I'm hanging out with people from Los Angeles, San Francisco, Texas. I mean, it was it was great, and you know, of, of course, all my older friends in Philadelphia. Yeah, and you know, you look at some of these older newsletters for back in the day. And that's where a lot of this is. A lot of these people had their own little newsletters, you know, to start off with, and it didn't balloon from there. And then you know, got into more of the tape trading instead of doing their own newsletters. And a lot of people, I mean, Boyd Pierce had his own newsletter, you know, and that's where he was so friendly with all these people. Eddie Gilbert. You know who we'll get into in a little bit. I mean, Eddie. Eddie was a newsletter guy as a kid. Paul Heyman. I mean, all these guys. They're they're friends with all these people for all these years, and they had these connections and stuff. That when they become famous in the business, they're still friendly with these people and everything. And that's where you know you have a lot of this stuff happening with these connections and longtime friendships. 
It's different. It was different I, than it is now. Let's put it that way. Oh, totally. I mean, there were like three kinds of pro wrestlers back in the day. There were the old timers who looked at wrestling fans as, you know, basically idiots for paying to see this. You had guys like Lex Luger, Ron Simmons, who, you know, someone approaches them at the gym and says, hey, I think you'd be a good pro wrestler. You know, Kevin Nash is a bouncer in Atlanta and he's a big guy. So he gets his a, a shot in the business. Then you've got guys like Eddie Gilbert and Paulie dangerously and Jim Cornette who all their life, they've just wanted to be in the wrestling business. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So they had an award ceremony at a banquet uh, on that Sunday night. And, um, it was, the Warriors banquet was attended by not only several dozen observer readers, several bulletin editors besides Dave and Gallagher, including Tom Burke of Global Wrestling, J.D. McKay and Bobby Ivey of Ringside Reflector, Jimmy Ward of Squared Circle, Greg Oliver, Canadian Wrestling Report, and Lance Levine of Chokehold, plus Lutez, Boy Pierce, Al Costello, the famous kangaroos, Lance Russell, of course everybody knows him, Eddie Gilbert, Missy Hyatt, Paulie Dangerously, Sam DeCero, and Alan Eppenstein, promoters of Windy City Wrestling, Debbie and Cora Combs, and two mass Windy City wrestlers who are traveling incognito. Ron Lemieux, who does a news bulletin arena report, was given the William Wilson Award for Best Newsletter Correspondent of the Year. Tom Burke was awarded Fan of the Year. The bank was a highlight for most, except those of us who stayed until 7.15 Tuesday morning, in which the last night was a highlight. More on that later. Particularly DeSero's speech, accepting the Ring of Mortals induction for Brody, Pierce's acceptance speech, and the appearance of Dez, who's regarded by many as the greatest wrestler of all time, and Lance's off-the-cuff introduction to Pierce. That sounds cool. All those in attendance were overly cordial when it came to answering questions and just talking with the readers, posing for photos, signing autographs, or even granting interviews as the case may be. Sputnik Monroe popped in the night before, while CWA wrestlers Terry Adonis and Keith Eric showed up as the manager downtown Bruno. Now to call downtown Bruno Hickerson as they're doing a gimmick where Phil had adopted him. But one of the highlights for Dave was the press conference, quote unquote, so to speak, which was the afternoon of the awards banquet with Gilbert Hyatt, Paulie, Costello, and Thez answering questions from the conventioneers. All were very candid, which will get us to another point later on. Thez came off very well and also showed clearly he keeps close tabs on today's wrestling scene as he talked about Akira Maeda's UWF and the current economic situation facing today's wrestlers and was hopeful the territorial system returning as he felt it was better for all concerned. Gilbert pretty well agreed with those views and was asked several questions about Japanese wrestling, including about his match with Tiger Masayama in Philadelphia back in 1983, which he vividly recalled. That shouldn't have been a surprise because we saw Nasayama videotapes that last a lifetime in the middle of the night. There's one thing I'm totally convinced of. Whether or not anyone wants to list Sayama as the greatest wrestler ever is certainly debatable, but there's no debate in my book that Sayama is the greatest high-spot wrestler in the history of the business. After the weekend, I've come to the conclusion that in many ways, Sayama as a high-spot wrestler was like Bob Beeman. The long jumper totally destroyed the world record back in 1968, and nobody's really even challenged it over the past 20 years. And now he was 10 to 15 years ahead of his time, and it's really too bad that wrestling politics caused a premature end to his career. I should have taken notes during the session because a lot of what went on would have been interesting. But I do recall Thez saying he felt Kerry Von Erich was the least qualified wrestler to ever hold the NWA title. Although after someone suggested Dusty Rhodes, he then said maybe it was a tie. <laughs> he was complimentary to several of today's wrestlers with genuine wrestling backgrounds like Dr. Dusty Williams and Rick Steiner and Mike Rotunda. Mentioned a few others. He didn't come off at all like some dude claiming the guys of his day were better than the guys of the day or anything of the sort. It was realistic about the changes in the business. 
John, are you at this uh, event here, this part of it? I, I sure was. And let me say something about Luthez. Um, I, I think sometimes he come, he had the reputation, an undeserved re- reputation, as being, you know, kind of this uh, bitter old man, you know, whatever. Luthez was fun. He was a lot of fun to be around. He was just one, you know, he was one of the guys. And when he was up doing the press conference, it, okay, it was me and like Dave Meltzer, a couple of, you know, people who I don't want to say know the business, but you know what I mean. Um, we're together during this, and someone asked this, you know, Lou, do you think the territories are coming back? And Lou's like, oh, definitely. This this McMahon's, you know, this national thing, it's not going to last. And we're, we're all kind of like, yeah, right. Uh, and afterwards, Lou comes specifically over to our table, and he goes, yeah, guys, sorry about what I had to say about the territories. I just, you know, wanted to make him happy. There was no way he heard us. It was like a magic trick that, you know, he just comes up to this this one table and says, hey, guys, sorry about that. I had to. <laughs> and that was cool of Des, you know, being a guy of his era to, uh, you know, basically acknowledge this type of fan base because, good Lord, guys of the, of the era that you were in at that time, 1988, wouldn't acknowledge fans like you guys. So. Yeah, that, that's that's uh, that's a testament to Luthez and uh, the legend he was. Well, he he, he was genuinely fun to be around. Too. Yeah, and yeah. he did surprise some effects? of the Bolidans. Like you look at like the subscriber list to Terry Justice's you know Gilbert fan club newsletter, and Luthez is a subscriber. Yeah, Lou, Lou, Lou definitely you know kept up to date, like Dave said, in, in those ways. All right, we're gonna play Lance Russell and uh, at this uh, little, little ceremony here, and and Lance is. You know, salty earth. Yeah, everybody loves Lance Russell. So let's uh, let's hear what Lance, uh, how he uh, was introducing here. John, you're a real buddy. He says, uh, can you get up there, take about two minutes, and tell them, you know, what the purpose of an announcer is and that sort of thing. John, I don't even answer a computer phone call for aluminum siding in two minutes. It takes me longer than that to say no. So... It it really, let me say on behalf of Memphis, we are delighted to have you folks here. Uh, I wish this particular day had been uh, a little better weather for you, but hey, maybe tomorrow will be better. Uh, The forecasters, all but my intrepid sidekick Dave Brown, said it was going to be sunny and 74. And while we're sitting there, and somebody said, is that what you guys talk about when the commercials are on? And yes, this is what we talk about, some of the things that we talk about. Uh, they, I, I said, geez, Dave, you had rain. You're the only one. If Bureau didn't have rain, nobody else had rain in there for Sunday. He had this last Thursday. And he said, yeah, God, that thing jumped three inches over there on Fort Smith, and I can't see where everybody's passing up. So um, he was correct. We did have a little rain here today. But we're delighted to have you here, and, and I am always pleased to see wrestling fans uh, anytime, and particularly uh, when they come to Memphis for a convention. I am absolutely delighted also to have the opportunity to see some of my favorite people like Miss Cora over here, one of my secret loves. You didn't know that before. Who is my all-time favorite wrestler? When people ask me that, and they always do, I gotta say Luthez. Who else is gonna say Luthez? And and 
of course, um, sitting right next to him over there is a guy that uh, I enjoyed always watching him because he had one thing in his mind, and that was doing the very best job that he possibly could, and he knew what he was doing. I'm talking about the old kangaroo, Alec Costello. <laughs> particularly delighted about that. Um, John asked me about announcers. I said, one of the things you have to have is, is an objective view to where you can sit back and, and look at the circumstances and make great judgments on things and be able to, uh, to judge it correctly. And uh, so that is one of the qualifications for announcers. And, and I don't want to talk about myself, but I will. Uh, I had great judgment. I knew that when here, we had a fan meeting here, what was it, 85 or so, something like that. And I said, Dave, would you quit screwing around with them letters? Nobody gives a damn what you think. And uh, obviously I was correct about that. <laughs> Dave, it's good to see you again, bud. guy who's really uh, gotten everybody's attention. Uh, wrestling guy. <laughs> <laughs> Wrestling announcers have a unique uh, position, and I think the ones that uh, that survive with any acceptance uh, have one thing that is common, and that is the fact that they love wrestling. Now, that may sound like a strange statement, uh, but if you will analyze it, there are a lot of guys who do it for the money. I'm talking about broadcasting football, baseball, basketball, wrestling, or otherwise, and they do it because it's a job and it's a way to make money. Um, I think particularly in this business, it is something that where you have to be a fan. It's not enough to be able to say, um, this is an inside step over toe hold or something like that. I mean, you know, you can make up anything. If it looks like it and you say it pretty soon, people say that's what it is. Uh, that's not enough. Uh, it is not enough to know that a guy weighs 235 and comes from St. Louis, Missouri or wherever. It's, it's not enough to be able to know when to go to a commercial and all, to, to be able to survive it. You, you have got to be a fan and love wrestling. And I believe that. And I have people ask me, why do you still, man, are you still doing that? Good night. And uh, I say, yeah, because I love it. Now, I want to tell you, uh, this may be the only time, Paul, that you and I ever, uh, ever agreed on anything. But you said something a moment ago that, uh, that is absolutely true. People who set standards for us to shoot at uh, in the wrestling business. And the gentleman who is an inductee, and I think more importantly, let me let me add one little comment here, an inductee into the ring immortals by the wrestling fans is a gentleman who set a standard. It is one that I constantly am conscious of and one that I am hopeful that I'm going to be able to live up to it every time that I go before a camera or on a microphone. Uh, I had never had the pleasure before of meeting this gentleman. I've known about him, known of his work and all of that. And so it was with particular satisfaction when John contacted me that I said, yes, sir, I wouldn't miss it for anything in the world. I want to introduce you tonight to our announcer, Ring Immortal, Mr. Boyd Pierce. Boyd.
He's wearing a normal suit. I'm so disappointed. Yeah, that, that boy Pierce is wearing a black suit. What's happening here? <laughs> but um, John, does that bring back the memories, huh? Well, it does. Actually, Boyd must have brought two suits because I have a bunch of pictures of him in a and just a, a, one of his crazy Boyd suits. You will never meet a nicer person than Boyd Pierce. I've been around Boyd three times, including, uh, you know, this time. And he, he's just fantastic. I'm nicest guy ever. Friendly. You know, we'll we'll talk shop with you. I, I, I can't say enough good things about Boyd Pierce. And having Lance Russell. Introduce Boy Pierce. I mean, come on. I mean, just <laughs> this. This is two of the all-time classic wrestling announcers, you know, and and uh, great people together. Yes. You know, for the first time. That's crazy. Yeah, and yeah, and a you know, supporter of these kind of fan events than Lance too. So go ahead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was just you know, I I had been around wrestlers by this point, but I mean, just being around Lance Lance Russell, I mean, he's a legend's legend. Yeah, and and Bix and Bix hit a point perfectly. Lance Russell was so supportive of these types of events all the time, and Memphis was Memphis was the home of, of conventions more than just pro- any other promotion. Y'all yeah, it's about be- going to Memphis. Well, yeah, it's because everyone likes Memphis wrestling, and it, it gets mentioned later in the Observer that you know they were a little bit—I uh, don't know if "worried" is the right word—but they were very precautious with us as far as you know. They were afraid we were going to ruin the TV taping or something. <laughs> and um, I saw Randy uh, Randy Hales talking to John Gallagher. John Gallagher is the guy who you know ran the thing and saying, "Hey, you know, make sure these people are under control." And I walked up. I said, "Randy, you know, my name's John McAdam. I flew in from New Hampshire for this. Nice to meet you." I'm like, "Randy, we all love Memphis wrestling. We're not, you know, we're definitely not going to do anything to you know sabotage your show. We're here, we're here because we love you guys." So I think I'd like to think that made a difference. And and what a t- what a you know refreshing mindset. Because today you have a lot of fans who want to cause a scene or make the show about them. And, you know, and this is just refreshing to hear that. That fans are like, we just, we're just coming to enjoy this. It's not, we're not making it about us. <laughs> we're here to enjoy it, exactly. what you present, what you're presenting us. And we'll, yeah. We, yeah. Uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Well, I have a question um, though. What? <laughs> This made me think of something. Were Bruce Grummard and the Najak twins at the convention? <laughs> no, I, I vaguely remember that name. He would like go to the WWF shows with with signs and whatever yeah. else. And I, I don't. I he was not there. Well, that's okay, good. There you go. That's good. All right. So there was a similar gathering on Monday with Terry Adonis, Downtown Bruno, San Desero. And Debbie and Cora Combs. Not as much stands out from that one, although Bruno was funny, both intentionally and unintentionally. And there's genuine heat between himself and Paul Lee. He said Jim Cornette was the best manager in the business and that Bobby Heenan was second. And he hoped to get in their category, but Paul Lee wasn't good. <laughs> Bruno's gimmick is no work, by the way, and he makes no bones about it. Becerra was plugging his Windy City Wrestling Group and wants to prevent the style of wrestling employed by the Bruce and the Crusher against Vashon, brothers of his youth. The odds are against them, particularly in booking an independent in the city that both WF and NWA run regularly and fairly successfully in. But he came up very determined that he make it. The key to tele- his television helped to survive in Chicago, 
And so the first year when his show begins on a local cable channel, but you do have to give him credit for pulling enough strings and making enough threats to get Bam Bam Bigelow to actually appear on his most recent main event after Bigelow had already started up with the NWA. And politically, that took him one heck of a lot of doing. Debbie and Cora Cones were plugging girl wrestling videotapes they had filmed in Palm Springs, California some months back, which included most of the leading female wrestling names in the U.S. Uh, Debbie, Wendy Richter, Medusa, Misty Blue, uh, and her crew, and even Leilani Kai. They hoped the group called Tiger Lily Promotions would turn into a touring female wrestling promotion with national syndication down the line. But that didn't happen. But Windy City Wrestling, that became one like the, one of the darling independent groups of this era, mainly because of all the friendships involved. But, uh, John, what are your memories of uh, San Desero and Windy City Wrestling? Well, we went into a Windy City Wrestling show. As a matter of fact, the, the next UAWF convention was in Chicago, and we went to a Windy City show. And it was at a bar. It was very small time. But Sam was really cool, and it was a really good show. But I, I do have kind of a downtown Bruno story from this. Sure. Go ahead. All right. Bruno shows up, and he looked like he just got done working on the underneath of his car uh, for hours <laughs> before he came to this event. He definitely had not showered that day. It's questionable at best whether or not he showered the day before. Uh, I have a picture <laughs> of me and Bruno from that day, which I can't find, but I will post it if it ever pops up. I mean, he was he was a fun guy and all. You know, I don't have anything bad to say about him. It's just like, you know, geez, he was living his gimmick. Dave put it well. <laughs> yeah, Dave was right. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, and um, um, as far as big. Heyman, he just didn't like Heyman because Heyman replaced him the previous year. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> hey, re- jealousy among managers is nothing new. That's for damn sure. All right, so here, John. Yeah, and Paul, Paulie, I think, is one of the greatest managers of all time. So, and he was great by 1988. So, yeah, it was just, it was a jealousy thing. Yeah, absolutely. All right, John, I allude to the TV taping. So uh, we also attended a lot of television taping on WMC-TV in Memphis, uh, which is a 90-minute show, aired live in Memphis, and had the 60 minutes, eliminating mainly the localized interviews. And it runs the following weekend in other CWA towns like Louisville, Nashville, Evansville, and the like. I've been to a couple of tapings in the past and always said it's something everyone should attend once as the studio matches come off much better live than on television. It's a lot more enjoyable than a WFTV taping, even though you hardly have as much wrestling or top-quality wrestlers. And I'm told it's more enjoyable than an NWA taping as well. I never attended the classic 45-second match, 90-second interview NWA tapings live. The show we saw was mainly interviews, but we did get some action. Bill Dundee and Todd Morton beat the Hangman and Keith Derrick in the opener, which was fine. Although Morton is bothered by a separated shoulder and really couldn't do much. Then came the Rock and Roll RPMs, who were really fired up, and they destroyed Alan Reynolds and Craig Knapper. Should be Rodney Knapper. And used a devastating stuff powerbomb, which looked like a killer move as a finisher. After that came newcomer Sid Vicious, better known as Lord Humongous to CWF fans. Real name Sid Udy. He destroyed Ken Raper. He looks pretty good. He looked pretty good in the squash and was very vocal and impressive with his facials, which surprised me. He's the only wrestler without the mask a few times in his short career. He's going to be a big star someday soon. Although the way the wrestling is, they'll probably make it too soon and well before he's ready. Boy, Dave was prophetic there. He oh yeah. He looked depressed to slaughtering someone on television, but actually working a match, he's got a long ways to go. 
Anyway, they had him offered uh, get off by Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden, and Bruno joined the stud stable, and before the show was over, Bruno had wined and dined him, which hardly sounds appetizing to Dave, and convinced him to join. I believe Fuller only did three interviews on the show. He does a good job, but he gets old in a hurry with all that. Interview time. Next up was Phil Hickerson and Katniss Jack Foley against Jeff Jarrett and Brickhouse Brown to get TV match. Jarrett stole Fuller's loaded boot and was wearing it for this match, and to get the boot, boot over, you knew what the finish would be. They wound up run, running RPMs, Fuller and Golden, but Jarrett used the boot to kick everyone all over the ring. Finish was fun. The match wasn't bad at all. For some reason, Foley was on the, the crowd side of the ring after being kicked around, and after the commercial had gone on, Jarrett and Brown realized he was still around, so they kicked him around some more while the rest of Memphis was watching the commercial. The final match saw Jerry Lawler beat Terry Adonis in two straight falls without so much as one wrestling move. Okay, did a top wrestle lock. First fall, he used a fist drop. Second fall, which was taped only for syndication, as the Memphis 90 minutes had already expired. Hickerson came to the ringside and was searched before the match, and they found two chains and a brass knucks on him. Finish saw Hickerson try to hit Lawler with the shoe, but Lawler ducked and he hit Adonis. It reads better than it looked because the rep up that said the finish was mistimed. The Top Guns, Ricky Rice and John Paul, supposed to work a TV show and the Monday Arena card, but sometime last week they blinked their eyes and decided wrestling wasn't the life for them and quit the AWA and the CWA before they ever got to the latter. <laughs> Which the Top Guns comes back, but it's Ricky Rice and Derek Dukes. All right, um, so John, describe the experience of being in the the Memphis studio here at this time. Well, first of all, I thought John Paul was a guy who had a lot of potential, but I guess that that's what happened to him. He decided the wrestling business was not for him. He, although he was back in '89, he, um, he, he would he would he would come and go. He 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 came back in '89. Then he quit again. He came back and was a TV job guy for WFN, WCW. Yeah, that's right. Off and on, so he he would show up. It's just random. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, go, being at the WMC studio was I'm glad I'm so glad that I will go to my grave being able to say that, yeah, I was there once. Um, I was the Mid-South Coliseum twice, which is nice. But being at the that TV taping was something special. Now, you know how they have like the, the backdrop where Lance and Dave do the announcing and there's like the, the logo in the background. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I got my picture with Dave and Lance. With the background, it was a perfect picture, and I lost it like 20, 25 years ago. I have not seen it. It's a, it's a oh, tragedy. Oh, man. <laughs> Sid really did look impressive during that quick squash. He did look like he was going to be the future of the business, and let's face or one of the top guys in the business. And let's face it, you know, who, who strikes first, WWF or NWA? And the NWA did, and they put him in a tag team at first, which I think was smart. And then, obviously, they made him a horseman, and they rushed him, and the rest is history. So, yeah, Dave called it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we're going to play that. So we got the clip, Bix. Uh, do you see how shifted stuff around? So we got Sid Vicious's debut in Memphis as Sid Vicious. He had been humongous. Before and he had worked very, very few matches without a mask. So here we go. Let's let's watch the debut of one Sid Vicious. We got I'm business, we here, got like, business to take care of. Right I got now. business to take care of. I'll sit right here and I'll continue my Dave, how about the introduction on the uh, match coming? All right, up? this match is gonna be one fall, ten minute time limit. Uh, one fall fifteen minute time limit, I beg your pardon. Introducing out of Kentucky at two hundred twelve pounds, Tommy King. And a big guy there, his name is Sid Vicious. He said it's nobody's business where he's from, and he weighs 300 pounds plus, and that's all he would tell us. Sid Vicious against Tommy King. Man. Oh, 
Oh, and right off the bat, we rang the bell. That was an open hand, but he just slapped him. He just absolutely towers over. I don't know what popped him, did you? Well, look at the size of that guy. I'm going to tell you. You like him? You like him? Or no? what you talk like about big. We've heard Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden talk about how big they are. Look at the size of this guy. What's this fella's name? Sid Vicious is who we're looking at. That's the right name. That boy's vicious. I like him, Bruno. I like him. His personality doesn't seem to be too charming. He is throwing Tommy King all over on the floor, rolls him back in the ring. That's a rock and roll singer, Sid Vicious. That boy killed himself. That boy killed himself. What a specimen. Tommy King caught in the bear hug. Power slam. We're going to. We're going to. Bruno, you might need to grab a briefcase on this, boy. We're going to get a contract for this young man. With a big leg. Spin this right there. That's all there was to that. Let's get him down here. Hey, hey. What do you want? Calm down a minute, man. Calm down a minute. Listen, over here, you That's might not know. Wait a second. Over here, baby, Stable runs everything. And Stable, Jimmy Golden, my cousin right here, just had a fit over you. As much as I did in downtown Bruno, you'd make a great man in our stable. What do you think? Sign a contract for us. Your economic problems will be over if you got any. Fuller? I want you, the so-called stud, the Tennessee stud, and everybody out here to know I don't like nobody. Nobody. But you know what? You got to be just a little sick, a little crazy, maybe a little vicious to come out here and even confront me with it. We'll work out something. All right. <laughs> Tell you one thing before you sign a, before you sign a contract, you better check with Brickhouse Brown. He knows about this guy. Hey, you don't have to start this stuff right here now. I'm talking to a man. He ain't got nothing to do with Brickhouse Brown. You let us handle our game of right here. Bruno, get over here. Get over here, baby. Listen, don't you take this money right here. Take that water bread out there, baby, and see what you can do about getting a contract on this board. Oh, take him out, buy him some bread. about a thousand dollars here. Now, don't worry, that's more than a thousand dollars. Don't you don't have to spend it all. If you need more, come back here. Get some signed up. Get some signed up. He gets that boy right there signed up, Lance. I'm gonna tell you something. You're not gonna need to worry about Brickhouse Brown or nobody else. I like that boy very much. Yeah, he's not gonna worry about anything either. He gets signed up with you. This we gotta take a break. All right, Robert. I know what. At this point, Robert Fuller was doing like four or five interviews per show. It was insane. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was all over the TV. That's for that's for sure. The <laughs> Robert Fuller show, but it was I, it was so cool. I mean, I, I obviously I've I've had that show on tape forever, and just seeing me and like forty people I know in the audience, it's it's still crazy. For Sid's debut of all, uh, the the guy who had become. One of the newsletter darlings in many ways, <laughs> make his debut in front of all you guys. That's classic. It is. And the guy had charisma. He really did. He did. You see, you can see it there. You can see it there that he had. He had something absolutely to go along with his size. It wasn't just a look. He has something. 
And you know what, too, especially, and it goes to, I think, what we talk about him being more comfortable at home in Memphis. This is his first promo ever. And it's on yes, he never TV, cut a promo. And he did a pretty damn good job. Absolutely. All right, so we talked about downtown Bruno. Uh, they're doing an angle this time where he had uh, become Bill Dundee's servant for the day. So let's watch Bruno working for old uh, superstar Bill Dundee and see how that went. I just want to tell the folks that uh, ending up was downtown Bruno, who served as a man servant. Come on out here, Bruno, for crying out loud. And and we got about 10 hours of footage on there, and obviously we don't have the uh, time for it. So we've got it edited down to give you a little idea. Well, uh, you'll of see how horrifying it was. Well, this is exactly what you deserved, and here's what no, it, it looks like. All right, Bruno. Okay, so real quick, John. Where is the monitor you guys can see this on? It's a, it's a, 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 a well, for 88, it was a big television set that they had in the studio. It was like a, a TV set like I had at home. Okay. And it was just, yeah, wasn't like it like rolling on like, like one to school, like you have it in school and the roller rack? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Like, wow, right, here we go. Voyage of the Mim- Mimi with Ben Affleck <laughs> and the ship captain who was racist against deaf people. <laughs> What have yeah. you got on? Well, I got my outfit on. That's what I always wear. Well, you don't wear it here. See the first job you got right there, what? washing that car, Mrs. Dundee's car. So just go change it, okay? Two hours we've been waiting. So on. I don't never change my clothes. Well, you're going to change them today, okay? Or okay. you can wash them in that. That's Whatever you want. It's up to you. I'll change mine. Get All right, dirty. Okay. Bruno, let's go. Get, me, get the bucket. Go get- Wasn't it uh, Mick Foley's first book where he said that Bruno... Um, when they were roommates in this era that Bruno would just throw his dirty clothes in a pile and never wash them. And yes. Mick asked why. And he said, I just thought they'd stop being dirty after a while. <laughs> Sounds about right. Sounds like Bruno's you philosophy. Car, you're going to get the hose. Hey, hey, you're getting the hose. Let's go. There, it's washed. Washed? Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wash the tire, Bruno. Come here. Come here. Fill the bucket up. Take this brush and wash that tire. I'll hold the hose for you, brother. Oh, excuse me. Hey! Wash the hose, Bruno. Get the brush. Jimmy, get me that brush over there. Give me that brush and just let me do this thing. All right. Scrub it. You need a bucket full of water. There's the water. Scrub the tire, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. What do I tell Robert about this? I don't care. What do you tell? Whoop, excuse me. Hey, that's it. Why, I don't knock you in. Why don't you? Because I don't want to. Just scrub the tire, Bruno. We got a real surprise for you. You ain't driving. You're pushing. Oh, come on. Got all this grass in here, so just take off and cut the grass, okay? The motor more, so take off, boy. Why is Bill Dundee wearing capri pants? Daddy, you think I'll tell him you want to start that thing up or what? I'll just wait. Hey, Bruno, you what? know what the sewer is? Yeah, I know what the you sewer is. You press the little button and it all... Right? That's it. Pittsburgh? Right. Right. Out here, we ain't got it. You know what we ought to do? What? We're going to pick it up. Right. You're going to pick it up with this little scooper pooper here? Well, it stinks. Right I ain't going to go in there. Oh, yeah, you I'm are. Scared. I ain't going to have no dog. I'm scared of that dog. All right, that dog just likes to eat nice meat. They ain't going to bother you. Oh, no, don't let me get in here. I don't want to be. Go. Pick it up, boy. Nah, I don't want to do this. You better be paying me good. I am. You will I tell Hickerson about this. 
Yeah. There's one sitting right in the garage. And there's the fire off. Yeah. You'll get it for me. Good. Break the tire, will you? confidence in my dad and Todd, I accept it. Good, you got enough stupidity. Uh, you got it. Well, the challenge was made. It was accepted. The idea being that when the Look at that boy like a red-headed stepchild, Lance hey, Russell. And like Mama says, it beats that way sometimes. No problem. Okay, well, we'll find it out. That's what it's all about. We're going to take time. I'll be back in just a moment. It's funny hearing Jamie Dundee's na nasally voice there. You know, considered how his voice get like this and all that hard living he was doing. Well, he's 17 <laughs> here, and Todd is 18, I think, or 19. Todd Morton, yeah. I mean, so young guys, young guys. Todd Morton, man, I'd forgotten all about him. Just a, a complete Ricky Morton clone, or at least was trying to be. And then reinvented himself years later, shaved his head. Went by his real name and became a hell of a damn talent in the in the uh, indie scene in IWMid South. So uh, yeah, she goes to shows. You know, sometimes that's what you gotta do. You know, reinvent yourself and do things, and you could be you know somewhat successful. He Absolutely. was like, totally. He was like a modernized version of Dundee more in his working style. Once he, but that's well, yeah. Who taught him? <laughs> there you go. All right, so uh, Dave, so I should mention the overall cooperation from the CW promotion was hardly what was expected considering their track record with past conventions. Supposedly, my attendance was part of the problem. Although I've been to previous conventions in Memphis where the promotion went out of its way to cooperate. But in this one, there really was no cooperation other than we received TV tickets. And even at that, there was the implied threat that if we misbehaved on television, we would get our Monday night tickets pulled. The few with the promotion, Lance, Rus Lance Russell, Bruno, and Keith Eric, who showed up, were arranged not by uh, for, for, were arranged for by us and not by the promotion. 
ironically, the reason the convention was scheduled in Memphis originally was because of their past history and being so cooperative with past wrestling getting-togethers. Ironically, it didn't really matter at all because the group that was there seemed more interested in mingling with each other and the rest of the personalities that were there were there because they wanted to be there and not because anyone told them to come, which made them seem, for the most part, like one of us rather than aloof folks making appearances. And here's what the difference is, I'm sure. It's that John Gallagher is a newsletter guy that's putting on the convention, but a more of a dirty type newsletter than the old bulletins of the WFIA era. You think that's the reason why, or do you think there's another another reason, John, why they were maybe a little bit more hesitant on this one? I think that I I, I really think that for whatever reason, um. Lawler and Jarrett and whoever else just like didn't like what Dave Meltzer was doing. And when they learned that Dave was coming now, mind you, Dave, you know, he was a much bigger presence in 1988 than he was in 1985. And I think they, they just didn't like what he was doing. Yeah. I mean, you you make a great point and that Dave has gotten more notoriety since 1985. Absolutely. So there's that. And then, you know, it could be other reasons. I mean, you know, the involve, involvement of some people more than in that time than it was in the earlier time. So who knows? Anyway, Monday Night in Memphis at the Coliseum was okay. I've seen a lot better, but I've seen a lot worse as well. Crowd was only 2,000, which had this point in the promotions. They flew in se- seven wrestlers for the show. Anyway, here it goes. Scott Steiner beat Terry Adonis with a power slam at 431. The only highlight was our group chanting Syracuse sucks. Actually, for the most of the card, the R group of a few dozen made a lot more noise than the rest of the fans, which only got into two or three of the matches. You know, we talked about Sid. Here's Scott Steiner, very young in the business, John. And then, uh, what's your first impression of seeing him live here? I, I, I always liked Scott Steiner. I always thought he had uh, a great look. I thought when he was in Memphis, it was apparent to me that, you know, he was going to move on to bigger things. There was a time... And when he was in the NWA, like 89, 90, I'm like, they should be building around this guy. So I, I thought very highly of Scott Steiner. Oh, yeah, he was another one. Like, he, he had uh, he had it just needed to be, you know, re- refined and, and, you know, get uh, fine-tuned to become uh, the, the major star he would become. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think this was his first territory. stop outside of, uh, outside of WWA. Well, that's yeah, what I was getting was at, the, too. Yeah, yeah, he needed a better training ground than that well he got it here he spent a lot of time in memphis so yeah he definitely got the the fine tuning there all right cactus jack and gary young beat alan reynolds and cat garrett in 436 when cactus pinned reynolds at the russian leg sweep reynolds and garrett stuff for the top guns who russell explained were injured well john paul was injured when he had a spleen problem reoccur no mention the wise partner in his show and he probably was afraid to come to see that by himself I guess we know why Lance's nose has grown so much over the years. <laughs> the guys tried hard for the short time they were in, but in there, but the timing was so hot, star and a quarter. <laughs> now, in this match, uh, Cactus Jack did the Nestie plunge bump coincidentally right in front of Dave Meltzer. <laughs> Shocking! Shocking he would do such a thing. <laughs> Smart guy. It was, but Dave didn't mention it. And then Dave it. doesn't even mention it. Dave doesn't even mention it in the rundown. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Phil Hickerson retaining CWA title, be- beating rookie Daryl Justin, the tag team Nature's Best. Dave believes he was a Bill Dundee trainee. 
Dave is correct. Then six with the DDT. Justin has had less ring time than Downtown Bruno has had. Uh, has had shower time and it's terribly green. <laughs> they did nothing until the five minute call. Then Hickerson roughed him up for a minute before finishing him off. Pretty bad for a title match. Quarter of a star on because DT is one of those awesome Arn Anderson variety moves. Match probably deserved negative stars. Dave stole the shower timeline from me. <laughs> <laughs> How about that, folks? <laughs> Quite all right. <laughs> he should have credited you. <laughs> well, I mean, I was know wrong. how Dave should be with attributions. But. <laughs> oh, yeah. You was wrong, John? I, I was wrong. He Foley did not do the mat, do the NST plunge in the in the second match. He did it in the fifth match. Oh, okay. We're about to get to that. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, RPMs. Mike Davis, Tommy Lane retained their CWA Tag Titles meeting. Bill Dundee and Todd Morton in a match where either Bun, Bruno or Jamie Dundee would get 10 lashes as their team loss. Our group was chanting Gumby at Jamie, which was his nickname in the Raw Fuller group when he was a heel, which he didn't seem to like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he probably didn't. Actually, uh, uh, Dave thought the match would be better, but Morton could, still couldn't do much because of his shoulder. Finish saw Morton have Lane pin, but there was a rep up. Gary Young came out and handed Davis a chain. He had Morton with it. And Lane pin more than 1144. After the match, Jamie, who a few years down the line will be the lead heel feeding with Jeff Jarrett in his territory. It's kind of close. Um, peeled off the shirt for Bruno to whip him 10 times. Bruno whipped him four times. Then handed the whip to Davis. A no-no. Steps called for Jamie and Bruno to be doing the whipping for one shot. And the faces broke it up and chased the heels away. They session mission on down TV. They did the bit from the previous Monday where Bruno and Jamie Valley for the day. Bruno was after seeing Sunshine and Jimmy Garvin with David Bonnery do that skit back in nineteen eighty three. Every other valet for a day angle doesn't do much. Star and a half. Oh yeah, that's the gold standard of of uh, valet for a day angles right there is the uh, the original one. Or baby doll taking off on Floyd the horse. Oh, that's a good one too. That's Absolutely. a great one. <laughs> I love that you guys were chanting Gumby and Jamie. <laughs> that is classic because, yes, folks, that is the name that they gave him in Knoxville months earlier in USA was Gumby. <laughs> he was listed in the newspaper promotions for the shows as Gumby. <laughs> Gumby, damn it. I'm Gumby, damn it. <laughs> All right, Jeff Jarrett and Brickhouse Brown down Katniss Jack and Jimmy Golden by DQ in 1051, the best match of the car. Beginning saw the heels try to take off the boot. In reality, there was almost no heat. I should mention Robert Fool was at ringside with crutches, although he won final television Saturday when he interviewed to lift him badly in another, and he was supposed to be in the match. Mainly the heels doubled up on Jarrett and tried to remove the boot. Finish saw Jarrett load the boot and kick Foley, who juice. And as you all know, it would broke loose. Bruno attacked Brown. Fuller jumped in, pounded everyone with the crutch. Foley was on the apron after getting a kick and pulled out powder to throw at Jarrett. However, Jarrett gave him a drop kick. Remember, the boot is loaded. And Foley took a hideous bump, by which I mean he nearly killed himself. It was the same bump Antonio Nookie's wrestling career nearly ended with in 1983 match with Hulk Hogan. He flew off the apron backwards, and we heard a sickening thud in the concrete, which sounded like a head cracking. There was a puddle of blood on the floor. And this was very scary looking, but thankfully we later learned that Foley merely had the wind knocked out of him, but it could have been serious. Fuller and Golden got the boot off Jared, but Brown got, finally got it loose on Bruno. Brown kicked Fuller, who tossed Jared the boot. Fuller's toss to Jeff looked real bad, and then Jeff killed everyone with the boot to clean the house, including Gary Young and the RPMs, who did run-ins as well. 
They managed to drag Foley out of there after he lay motionless on the floor for a minute or two. Actually, the match itself was only average, but the finish was very exciting. Three stars. Well, there's your cactus bump. <laughs> yeah, wrong match, but he definitely took it. And it, it was it, just as Dave described. It was scary. Good Lord. <laughs> Toilet blood on the floor. Man, that's, that's interesting. Eric Gimby retained the world-class light heavyweight title. Somebody ought to put Eric on a scale because he's got an awfully big belly for a light heavyweight by being Bill Justin, Daryl's brother, from a diving headbutt in 502. There was no heat at all. However, Embry carried the match, so it was watchable, but it certainly wasn't ever a match. The highlight was chance of Kid Mantel, Kid Mantel, which seemed to have said Embry. Oh, my goodness. Well, we say we're going to behave, and then we get there. Well, you say <laughs> well, you you're behave not on TV. <laughs> yeah. Um, this isn't televised. <laughs> besides, the world-class light heavyweight title had a 237-pound weight limit. That is correct, yes. That is correct. Let's not forget that. Jimmy Valiant down Tommy Rich by count on 649 of a New York City street fight. There was no wrestling here, as you'd expect, and very little action. It was mainly choking, biting, and tons of blood. Rich bled like Lake Superior, and Valiant wasn't all that far behind. They did some low blows, choked each other with various things from a garden hose to a rope. Valiant threw powder at Rich, then Hickerson came in. Rich used a chair and doubled up on Valiant for a while until Jarrett and Dundee came in. Valiant punched Rich out of the ring, and Rich took a good bump to the floor. The only thing remotely resembling anything but bleeding and choking, and was counted out of the ring. They didn't allow for DQs in the rules, and they had three guys run in, but countouts are okay. Well, it's a New York City street fight. It's different rules. They brought to the back. They brought back by the dressing room a little, but there wasn't much of that either. Some people do get off on this stuff, but this definitely is the type of the match which turns fans off in an awful lot of cities. One star. See, folks, Dave's always been consistent on matches that's like this. I know people complain today about Dave and how he feels about you know hardcore blood matches like this. He's always been that way, so he's always consistent. But, uh, John, this is uh, this sounds like quite the uh, spectacle with Tommy Rich bleeding like Lake Superior. <laughs> you know, when we first got there and we heard what the card was going to be, everyone kind of groaned. I mean, on paper, this just was not a good card. We were I was kind of hoping that this one might be good. I Dave gave it one star. And, and if you know, obviously, it's a 33 year old memory, but. I remember specifically disliking this match. It's not even that, like, you know, I hate blood, I hate brawling. It was just really bad brawling. I mean, and and by the way, uh, you know, I like Tommy Rich and everything. Tommy Rich, his his weight was completely out of control at this point. Well, this is this is uh, drugged out Tommy Rich with Mr. Donnie and uh, in Georgia, right here. This is that era. I, I, you said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> where he's got the beard. I mean, what's the truth? Where he's got the beard, and uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's something else in this time period. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, and so he's coming to Memphis doing shots, and uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this sounds like a spectacle. That's for damn sure. Good lord. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was not a very good match. It, it wasn't even a good brawl. And I mean, let's face it, it's Jimmy Valiant. What are you going to do? <laughs> 1988 Jimmy Valiant too. Yeah. <laughs> The finale was an eight-man cage, eight-man tag match with the world-class promotion versus CWA, Texas versus Tennessee, which saw Kevin and Kerry Von Erich team with Steve Dewitt-Tewitt-Cox and Frank Dusick, and they beat the King, Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, Jeff Jarrett, and Andy Marlin. Match went 15-03, mainly action, although there wasn't a lot of heat except for a few spots, particularly a short stint with Dusick against Marlin. 
on TV, Deuce did a good heel, good heel interview. However, even though they went heavy on the Texas-Tennessee angle, fans didn't seem to take the world-class guys besides Deuce as heels. Kevin and Cox made it worse because they were totally lost. Kerry worked good, all things considered, with the CWA guys, but he still never got across as a heel. And in fact, was cheered almost as, as much as Lawler and Jarrett. Kevin and Cox basically got no reaction. Lots of times everyone in the ring finished saw Marlin had Dusick pinned. However, Kevin punched Marlin and Dusick got the pin. Then after the match, they had signed the cage match with the first guy out the door. Stipulations for the next of the endless series of Kerry Lawler town unification matches with Valiant as the keeper of the key, which we assume would take place this Monday, but probably will be a few weeks away. Kerry juice during this match, by the way, two and a half stars. Well, here's the thing. I mean, the Texas Tennessee angle, you know, it worked in Dallas. It didn't work here, and I think mainly why it didn't work here is you had guys in, that were the USWA, well, CWA guys going to Texas at the time who could play heel a whole lot better than these guys from Dallas was playing heels. I mean, you, you hit the nail right on the head. Lawler is one of the best baby faces of all time and one of the best heels of all time. The fans in Memphis were just not going to boo Kerry Von Erich. Um, there was the, the only highlight of this match was I remember Kevin Von Erich just stiffing the crap out of uh, Eddie Marlin <laughs> at one point. <laughs> I mean, he hit him hard. You could hear it. And I think, Dave, he gave it two and a half stars. Again, I'm working from a 33-year-old memory, but I think two and a half stars was way generous. I would have gone closer to one. <laughs> Kevin Von Erich being stiff, I cannot believe that happened in the <laughs> yeah. With I an just... old guy, nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, Dave, so I shouldn't forget we had a trivia contest, which took place in two sessions, which wound up being won by Randy Smith of Seeking Spring, Pennsylvania. Smith was doing a replacement act in the Jeopardy game that John Gallagher devised for Keith Eric, who, along with Dave and Travis Bronigam of Houston, were the finalists. Actually, Dave was kind of the heel here because nobody wanted him to win, but he finished the game way ahead and then blew it by missing two questions in a row after purposely betting enough to lose. The questions that did Dave in were, who was the first wrestler Jim Cornette ever managed? Correct answer was Sherry Martell. Although Dave will bet even Jim himself would have gotten that one wrong because he only managed her for one match, but Smith got that one right. Anyway, we wound up tied after Dave guessed Jesse Barr, which was way off. The first Russell Cornette really managed for the record was Sherry Martell. But in reality, it was Dutch Mantell for two weeks, then the Galaxians, Ken Wayne and Danny Davis, and then Barr, Adrian Street, Crusher Broomfield came far down, far down the line. The first runoff question was, who did Jay Strongbow and Sonny King beat for the WWWF tag titles? And Dave guessed Luke Graham and Tarzan Tyler, which was wrong. And Smith picked the correct answer, Baron Mikel Cicluna and King Curtis Iakea. And by the way, Randy Smith is the one uh, who shot the videotapes that we have for, of the convention. Yeah, and Randy yeah. is a frequent guest on my uh, my podcast, Stick to Wrestling. And don't tell don't anyone tell Randy this, but it was so hot, so obvious that Dave threw the contest. Dave is not good at throwing things and making it look like he's not throwing things. <laughs> that is amazing. Uh, absolutely, the highlight of the convention was after the show Monday night when a group of us and Dave can recall John McAdam. Manchester, New Hampshire, Tom Robinson of Philadelphia, Harry White of St. Louis, Mike Gunter of Raleigh, Smith, Dave, Dor the Quattro of New York, a few others, and he'll kick himself for forgetting, got together. Dave remembers Lance Levine and Steve Sims and Jeff Siegel from Chicago in that group and watched videos until 7.15 a.m. 
Actually, the videos were background. It was mainly comedy and stuff in the worst possible taste. But after four days of respectability, several of us went pretty wild on Monday night. All right, talk about that tape watching session, John, and how uh, <coughs> how raunchy were did you guys get? Oh man, um, well let me say this: I am going to be on the uh, Shut Up and Wrestle podcast with Brian Solomon in a couple of weeks, and Brian did the same thing you did, uh, Chris, when he was like, "Oh, you know, legend tape trading this. He's a legend." And I'm always like, "Oh God." And and he, Brian was just like, now John never takes credit for this, so I'm going to put him over. And I'm just like, ah, I take credit for these guys. Like there's like 40 or 50 of us. Some of us have passed. Harry White's no longer around. Um, you know, John Gallagher's no longer with us. But I take credit for all these guys being friends because Tom Robinson and I. God had been out trying to get our pictures taken with the Von Erics before they died. And we come in and we're just, you know, we're two rowdy 20 something year olds. And we were just walked in there and we're loose. We're friends with some of the people already. And we were just ourselves and everyone else just kind of jumped into it, you know? And like I said, there are people, and I don't even want to name names because I'll forget somebody, but literally like 40 or 50 people who I am either friends with on, on Facebook or, you know, um, correspond with. And sometimes uh, like 10 of these guys have been guests on six wrestling. So it's been, you know, a, a 33 year old, uh, 33 year long thing that got started on this night in 1988. Yeah. And Dave was talking about Sayama, you know, and I mean, that is is he is it's is it's wild to think, you know, in the in the current age, you know, of how we consume wrestling now, that you know you got a guy here like Sayama who had been basically out of the business at this point by three years because he, he left in '85 after working with Maeda and UWF, and people are still like gushing over you know what he was doing, you know, just a few years earlier and. These days, you know, you have such a, you know, consume so much and so quickly that stuff doesn't have that type of lasting effect like Sayama stuff did in that point in time. And it's, it's crazy to think about how different we are now. Check this out, Chris. I in, in the mid 90s, I had I still had people coming up to me. Hey, you're the wrestling guy. Hey, I saw this guy in a mask in 1982 on WWF Wrestling. What was the deal? He was phenomenal. This is like 15 years later. People are like, who was this guy? I remember him. He was he was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's crazy how that worked out. But <laughs> Seven fifteen in the morning, watching wrestling tapes. That's, 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 that's. Yeah, uh, in quotes, watching wrestling tapes. They were <laughs> definitely on in the background. Um, <laughs> but there, there was one thing that I did, and I, I, I um, I've I've told the story a couple of times, but this is for a new audience. Um, we're at Randy Smith's room. There's like ten of us, and I'm like, I'll call Kevin Von Erich. It's like four in the morning, right? So I, I tell everyone, I'm like, do not laugh. No matter what, bite your arm off before you laugh. So I call his hotel room. I'm like, hi, can you get Kevin Von Eric on the phone? Sure. And I get him. And he's like, hello. I'm like, Kevin, this is Jamie Dundee, brother. How you doing? And I had him on the phone for an hour. And I have witnesses <laughs> for this. <laughs> so you pretend to be Jamie Dundee. The whole time pretending to be Jamie Dundee. <laughs> 
Oh my goodness. And like I said, I know that sounds like a crazy story, but like, you know, there are people you can ask about that witness it. Then at like seven in the morning, my phone rings and it's Ron Lemieux. And I miss getting calls like this. Ron's like, what did you do last night? (laughs) (laughs) So word got around really quick. It's all good-hearted, clean fun. That's what it yes, was. Yes, exactly. Except I told Kevin Von Erich that his flight had been moved to a later time, and he almost took <laughs> his plane. Oh. <laughs> I regret doing that, and he he did not miss his plane. I do regret <laughs> that. Oh man, yeah, that, that's right, Bix. You've heard that story before. I told it. I told it to yes. you once. Yes, that is fantastic. I've never heard it. That's great. <laughs> I'm glad you so then I called here, 10 Minute uh, Tell and I said I was doing a, a, another story for Penthouse Magazine. Could I please get an interview with him? And he just hung up on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So that's the kind of stuff that was going on at the tape watching party. <laughs> and then Dave closed like this. We'll be keeping you informed of all the details of next year's convention. Although Tim, the plans are that it would be in the summer, probably early August, and most likely be either in Chicago or Atlanta. Everyone pretty well wants it to be in Atlanta, but the controversy of the type of organization that this was might make some promotions not want to cooperate. The truth is, by next summer, the NWA will be under a totally different regime anyway, and the Turner organization might welcome a group of fans from all over the country. In fact, I bet they would. And I don't want anyone to get, me, get the wrong impression because the group was pretty well behaved, and a Monday Night Card created more crowd enthusiasm than the other 1,900 or so fans in the building put together. Lastly, I'd like to take this time out to thank everyone who was there, and especially John Gallagher for putting the thing together, and the rest of the personalities who did attend. I'd also like to thank everyone who was so cooperative with me the previous weekend, previously, uh, particularly Brad and Vicky Muster, Chicago. And I, ne- I even got a chance to meet Steve Beverly in Birmingham. The only problem with having a lot of fun in a short period of time is that you always wind up getting sick when it's over or at least exhausted. So, yeah, this is even day you got to meet Steve Beverly for the first time in this trip. So, uh, yeah, so all in all, um, John, uh, a summary of uh, this wild weekend in Memphis. I mean, a summary, it was, you know, just the greatest weekend ever for me. And I, I used to think I was weird for thinking that I'm like, yeah, I, one of my, the most fun times I've ever had was with a, a bunch of guys, wrestling guys in Memphis. And then, you know, what is it like seven years later, uh, Jamie Ward says, Hey, you know, get on Facebook. Uh, you know, all the guys from the UAWF have a group there and everyone, you know, plenty of guys felt the same way I did that. They they had the time of their lives in Memphis in 1988. And like I said, it's, it's like 40 or 50 people that I am still in touch with and just, you know, it's such a good time. Yeah. Awesome. Fixed. Uh, you got another clip here you want to play real quick? Well, first, I just found John in one of the clips. Yeah, there he I is. Look at John. The shirt, especially. Yeah. Where am I? That's you, right? Right there. Is it not showing up for you? Uh, oh, I see. I see it. Yeah. All right. My <laughs> baseball Hall of Fame shirt. <laughs> yes. So there, there's John right there. Yes. Look at there. And there were a couple things I wanted to play real quick. There's the... Well, I'll play this for... Which is... Uh, Heyman going up to Meltzer to give him scoops. 
And then also I want to play the quick WMC uh, news thing about the convention. There's Dennis. Dennis Coraluzzo's name wasn't mentioned. Yes. Oh, yeah, it should have been. Whip Haven. Hugging on him. Look at that. There's <laughs> Nate the Rat. Nate the Tom Rat. Robinson. Tom Robinson. Dave in his suspenders. <laughs> All right. Let me. Hi. You bitch. Dennis and Paulie <laughs> hate hey, each other. I'm being interrupted. Interview. I, I have to get scoops here. I'm giving scoops here, and with your scoop, there's Dave Meltzer. Hot stuff, Dave Meltzer. Well, I mean, not now, but. <laughs> you muscle bear. Oh, God. Give me a um, break. Give me a break. Wow. Well, I'm going to steal him now. I'm going to bribe him and get some good stuff written about him. It seems like he's talking to him about going to Crockett, right? I think they were just hamming it up. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I, I think we all knew he was going to JCP by this point. And, oh, and there's Eddie with Dave. Yes. Look at there. <clears throat> yeah, Eddie was Eddie. evil. All right. Let me, and now we get the. Oh, Eddie, the yeah. Eddie was always, I mean, well, he's got the good Lord. He grew up with it. He yeah. grew up in, in the, the, the fan letters, you know. Inside the ring is drawing people to the days in Riverview in Memphis this weekend. United Association of Wrestling fans from across the country are there for their first annual convention. The fans will induct three wrestling greats into their ring of honor. They also say they're also here to share their love of the sport with each other and trade wrestling items like videotapes of their favorite matches. Tim Clark asked the group's chairman why wrestling made such fanatics of them all. Like the, the, the action and the soap opera aspect of it, of good versus evil. It's kind of like that old Shakespearean morality play. That's the aspects I like. If you ask everybody in this room what they like about wrestling, you're going to get 50 to 60 different answers, I guarantee you. Just something for everybody. It's something for everybody. Some people don't like it. That's what they make the channel changer for. We love it. We ain't going to change channels. Well, right here at this channel, the UAW fans will be here at Channel 5 tomorrow morning for what else but championship wrestling. Right here on wait, Channel wait, wait, 5. There we go. You, you made the WMC right there. Not the music. Two days Twice. I made it for the uh, taping, too. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, there's Robinson and Paulie. Paulie was a riot. Yeah. The Combses. Yeah, he was. So, there we go. W uh and uh, Jack Eaton there in the news. I forgot to mention Jack Eaton, legendary uh, sports guy Jack Eaton, who also would dabble in wrestling a little bit and wrestling announcing. So uh, Dennis yeah, and Frank Chili. Yeah, look at there. Good stuff. Good stuff. There's Missy and her niece. And her niece, yeah. So, good, good times. All right, John will be back with us in a little bit, but me and Bess are going to go on here as we go to the World Wrestling Federation. And boy, there's a big story in here this week. But it wasn't as big at the time. There are more problems between Dynamite Kid and the Rougeau brothers. Apparently, just before leaving on a tour of Europe on the uh, October 15th taping in Fort Wayne, Indiana, another altercation occurred in the dressing room between the, the two. Once again, Dave's heard two versions, but basically Raymond sucker punched Dynamite. One said to roll the coins. The other said Jacques held Dynamite and Ray hit him. Dynamite needed several stitches, had teeth knocked out. If one more incident occurs, 
David would expect Vince would have to step in, and some of these guys would be history. So how about that? The verse, two versions that Dave has, Bix, is of Raymond Rougeau being the one hitting dynamite. Ray was the fighter, normally. Yeah. So I guess that's why. Um, hey, look, we're not going to play any of the shoot interview clips in part because it seems like just about everyone agrees more or less on what happened. Yeah, there's a, if you want to, I mean, there's one online uh, of Hannibal interviewing Jacques Rougeau in the barbershop about this, which is interesting. John getting his hair cut, talking about, you know, sucker punching Dynamite Kid. And, of course, there's Dark Side of the Ring. When they're when they're on Dark Side of the Ring and with the Dynamite, Dynamite episode, so, yes. So, there, I mean, it's on there, too. So, it's a known story. But, um, yeah, Cra- a crazy story. Yeah, why don't I go to Dynamite's book to also get the backstory, shall we? Sure. I got along great with Kurt Hennig. Like me, he enjoyed a good prank. But when he played one on the Rougeaus, it backfired on me and turned into something a lot more serious. And I believe I'm going from the ECW Press version, so it doesn't have as much of the British English, the one I have here on my computer. Or, no, it wasn't ECW Press, it was sports publishing, I think. But, the anyway... We were in Miami, Florida for a house show, and as I've already told you, leaving your clothes unattended while you were in the ring could be risky when certain people were about. A lot of wrestlers had got wise to this and had somebody watch out for their stuff while they were wrestling. And that's what the Rougeaus did. They asked Kurt Hennig to keep an eye on their clothes. While they were gone, Kurt found a pair of scissors and cut their shirts and pants to ribbons. It had Bulldog stamped all over it, so just before they got back, Kurt shot off into the toilet. They walked in, saw their clothes, and shouted for Kurt. He called back that he was on the toilet. So straight away, they put two and two together and made five. They decided it was me and Davey Boy Smith. Bear in mind, I knew nothing about this because I wasn't even in the same dressing room. Which is a pretty good point. <laughs> Kayfabe locker room. <laughs> they started... Yeah, because he, they were heels and both all their faces. Yeah. They started cursing us and saying things about what they were going to do to us. And sure enough, word soon got back to us that our names were mud with the Rougeaus. I still don't know why at this point, why at this point, I still didn't know why at this point. So I thought, right. I walked right, excuse me, I walked next door into the dressing room where they all sat playing cards. And I admit Jacques had his back to me, but all I did was give him a flat hander straight across the, his ear. He jumped up and shouted, What are you fucking playing at, Dynamite? Then he turned and tried to dive at me low for double leg, but as he went down, I got on top of him, turned him over, and banged him twice in the face. Then Raymond came over and tried to interfere. He put his hand across saying, Dynamite, stop, Shock's had enough. I said, Move your hand, this has nothing to do with you. He wouldn't move. So I knocked Raymond out. I laid the Rougeaus flat out on the floor. That should have been the end of it. By mistake, they thought I'd cut their clothes up, which was no big deal because I'd done it to a lot of wrestlers, but Kurt Hennig later admitted it was him, so as far as I was concerned, we were straight. Two weeks later, we were in Fort Wayne, Indiana, to do a TV taping. I'd seen the Rougeaus a few times since Miami, but they'd never said a word to me or Davey. Anyway, this day, in between taping their interviews, they were both quiet, reading a book. Not talking, but reading. Which I thought was a bit funny. TV taping sometimes took all day and all night. You'd be taping interviews to go with matches for up to a month ahead. 
We broke for lunch, had something to eat, and then, one by one, the wrestlers were called back for the next interviews. As usual, I was the last one out of the canteen. Davey went back ahead of me. I grabbed a cup of coffee, lit a cigarette, and started walking back down the corridor to the studio. Ahead of me, I could see the Rougeaus talking to Pat Patterson in the corridor. Jack, Jack, Jacques was leaning against one wall. Raymond was on the other, doing the talking. I had the cigarette in one hand, cup of coffee in the other, and as I got nearer, I remember thinking to myself, no, they're not going to do me here, because Pat, who was the foreman, was there. He always calls the booker of a given promotion the foreman in his book. Don't get me wrong. If Pat hadn't been there, I would have approached him in a totally different manner. But I thought, no, I'll be all right here, and step right through, when, bang, Jacques smashed me in the mouth with a knuckle duster. I heard the crunch as four teeth went there and then. My mouth was ripped to shreds inside and out, and there was blood mixed with pieces of gums just pouring down the front of me. That first shot had knocked me dizzy, but I still managed to think. Instinctively, I knew I couldn't go down, and I needed to back myself against the wall. Everything was a blur, and somewhere in the background I could hear Pat shouting, Stop! Stop! And then Jock hit me again, maybe two or three times. I was ready to blast him back when I saw Ray out of the corner of my eye, about to blindside me. For that split second, I thought that was it. I'd had it. I couldn't take the two of them. Then I heard Bad News Brown shout, What's going on? He'd heard the commotion and come out of the dressing room into the corridor. He saved my life, because if he hadn't appeared when he did, I think they would have killed me. The Rougeaus didn't hang about. When they saw Bad News, they took off like sprinters down the corridor and out of the building. I mean, that's dynamite side of the story. I mean... And it's not that different from the other side of the story. Not very, no. Um, when Shot tells a story, he goes into the whole the story in between the incidents too. You know, where he talks about his dad and yes, his, da- his dad being such a tough old street fighter, telling him what he needed to do and going to Florida orders, and the fact that he didn't say anything to nobody until the day he did the, did the got his revenge and all that other stuff. I mean. And of course, the, the aftermath afterwards and all that stuff. I mean, well, the the whole thing with Jacques trying to make Dynamite think that he put a hit out on him if he were to get revenge. Yeah, that too. So, which poor Michelle. Yeah, you could tell that still bothers her all these years later. Well, I mean, I don't blame her for life. Yeah. So. Quite the wild story, and can you imagine this? Something like this have you know? We we just had, you know, these issues going on in AW where you have a uh, Sammy Guevara and Andrade and Sammy and Eddie Kingston, and of course Punk and Omega and the Bucks. Think about this story, how this would have went in a social media world. I mean, we've had some sucker attacks in more modern times. Remember uh, Flair going after Bischoff with Arn watching the door? Yeah. But yeah, that's Flair and Bischoff. I mean, they're not Bischoff's not even a you know professional wrestler. But I mean, yeah, I mean it's uh this is one of those those famous stories that you know finally people start talking about more and more in recent years. You know, yeah. So yeah, if you I mean you want to hear more about it, I mean we got shooting interviews and uh, everybody go listen to listen to that, watch that whatever on uh on youtube so uh or whatever you watch your shooting interviews on so yeah what a, a famous story my goodness 
Well, the TV taping in Fort Wayne uh, that night drew 9,500 fans. Among the incidents, while Jake Roberts wrestled Rick Rude, Cheryl Roberts slapped Rude and Jake pinned him. Brother Love, who has moved to Superstar Show since Vince likes the way the thing has gotten over. That's right, started out on Challenge. Uh, did an interview with Hogan, then Slick sprayed stuff in Hogan's eyes. They handcuffed him to the guardrail and Bossman beat him up. Hogan did a stretcher job to try and put heat on the Hogan Bossman main events. And that worked. And the next night, it says Fort Wayne, but it's Toledo. They did almost the same exact angle. And this one, instead of doing a stretcher job, Hogan made a comeback. They sure will see one version there, but not both. So I guess they want to do both and decide which one worked the best. Well, it was a stretcher job that aired, didn't it? No. Oh, it was the incident, the comeback one? He kind of, I think he runs at him, tries to run Animal Cuff to the to the guardrail and breaks the guardrail off, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. I think it's a stretcher job or earthquake. That's what I was thinking about. Yeah. You're right. I think Bruce talks about the decision on his podcast at some point. I don't remember which episode. I'm sure you can find the clip on YouTube. Um, well, which one do you think they should have went with? Do you think they did the right decision, or do you think they should have went with a stretcher job to get e- even more heat? It ended up drawing? Yeah. So The way they went ended up working. You know, and I get the idea with the Hogan type of babyface if he's not taking a lot of time off or anything, that you don't want him to completely die in this angle. Yeah. It makes sense, I think. Um, And I think that was the rationale, if I remember right. Yeah. Um, In a dark match, Hogan beat Boston by countout, which is how most of their matches are ending. Set up cage matches. Tito Santana went to a draw Rick Rude after the match with Rude with the kiss of one. Tito dropped him out of the ring, kissed the girl himself, and did the same dance over. So they'll be feuding those two as Jake starts being programmed with Andre. Poor Jake. Well, Rick and Tito had a, like a house show feud, but they didn't have no TV feud, really, other than what we talk about here. Yeah. Blanchard Anderson debuted as the Brain Buster, so no reaction at all. It beat former TBS jobbers Bob Emery and Tommy Angel. Ass. Tommy Angel. Also in a dark match, the Anabolic Warrior beat Honky Tonk Man by DQ. On TV, they had Kurt Henning challenge Randy Savage, so Dave presumes he'll be heading that direction quicker than he thought. Maybe as soon as the end of the year. And if Savage beat Bad News in a title match. Well, they don't go in that direction. Did that even air? No. No. So we never we never get anything with Savage and Hennig. Yeah, but not until 92. The Survivor Series deal. When they team up, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's that's what they end up teaming up. Yeah, no, Savage and Henning never had a match against each other. What is the deal with how they start using a bunch of former TBS job guys in this era, anyway? Um, they're mainly in the East Coast, you know, on these shows. Um, and I think they and if they brought them out to to West or something like that, I think they were just doing it like they did Dusty Wolf in a way too. Okay. They were bringing like preferred guys to job. So, I, mean, I think that's what it was in the end. So, well, yeah, you do see a lot of crossover in this era. Absolutely. Suppose that the TV team is in Toledo, Hulk Hogan during the show, ending posing routine took way too much time. And Vincent Mann himself, along with security, had to tell Hulk to leave the ring. Hogan must pose, but not for too long, I guess. Well, God knows what time it was. 
with how that was going on too. It's again, it's you know, it's during a school night that these tapings are going on. You know, yeah. What day of the week were these? They always taped on Tuesday and Wednesday. Okay. Yeah. So this would have been the Wednesday taping. Chico California on October 5th. No, it was not named after Brian Alvarez. Drew 1,500 fans as the Hart Foundation beat the Bolsheviks. Hacksaw Jim Duggan over Tate DiBiase by DQ. Hercules over Kim Patera. Rash was 60-40 pro Hercules. Paul Roma pinned Danny Davis. And Coco Samoa pinned Bulldog Bob Brown in Chico, California. That must be the other Bob Brown, right? On it, no, from California. On it, 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 it's definitely Bulldog Bob Brown? They would do some funky things in this era. <laughs> I mean, Coco Samoa's California guy, right? But Well, let me make sure, then. Uh, subbing for Harley Race. Bulldog Bob Brown. Oh, okay. Okay, so that makes sense, then. I'm looking to see if he worked any other shows in that time period. Okay, I don't see any listings. Oh, yeah, no, he worked two days later in Larkspur, California. Losing to Coco Samoa. Hmm. That's weird. Very weird, but... What would you say is weirder, that or Negro Casas in 1983? Explain. When you see Negro Casas in San Jose results, Susan and Tony Atlas on a WF show. I don't know if I knew about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. well, okay, wait, there's more. Okay, okay, so I just pulled it up. San Diego, November 683, he defeats Great Goliath. Yeah. Loses Tony Atlas in San Jose on November 7th. Okay, this is wild. San Jose, December 2nd. Negro Casas fought Steve Pardee to a draw. Mm-hmm. So three matches. What the? On his career record archive deal, whatever. Um... Yeah, that's what I saw for the first time. I was like, "What?" <laughs> and uh, in the news, it was in the newspapers. So I was like, oh, "Okay." Huh. Uh, by the way, this so by the way, this car was held the same night as TV tapings. The TV tapings. So DiBiase, Duggan, Hart Foundation, and Hercules have all fallen to C team status. Although it really doesn't matter, since so C and D teams are being dropped this week anyway. Yeah, this is the era where they're running a lot of small shows. A lot of small shows. And they end up not long after this going back to three shows a night, but it's not like... Yeah, this is when they they end it. They end it after the summer of 88. But they go back to three shows, but it's not like... How do I put it? They don't have the clear C team anymore. There's more of an even distribution. No, they're spread out. Across the three shows, yeah. You have real name value on the smaller market shows. And they're not necessarily high schools and the like. Yes. All right. Gay Paris, Paris, France on October 7th at Bessie Stadium. It's uh, basically, it's uh, what is it? Palais Omnisport de Bercy? Yeah. Taped on, uh, televised on Canal Plus and RTL in Europe. And uh, as we record this, just uh, uploaded on YouTube in full. Uh, we had Greg Valentine over Don Morocco in your opener in 1157. Andre the Giant over Junkyard Dog in 709. With uh, using the feet for leverage after a boot to the face. Audrey spit more than five of those minutes outside the ring, refusing to enter until JYD removed his chain from the ring. After the bout, Andre threatened the ring announcer to refer to him as Andre the Giant rather as Andre Lay Giant. 
<laughs> That's some heel heat. Uh, Rock and Rob have been WF Women's Champion Sessional Sherry to win the title at 12.32 with the Bulldog off the top rope. There's your title change. Lanny Poffo over Barry Horowitz at 13.03 with a somersault splash. Prior to the match, Lanny read a poem in French to the crowd, picks. Oh, was it a naughty limerick? <laughs> he wants to do a man from Nantucket. Exactly. All right. Um, Demolition beat the Bulldogs when Smash pinned Dynamite at 23-21. This is two days after the Fort Wayne incident. So Dynamite had that happen, then had to fly to France. Yes, he talks about that in the book. Um, actually, a clothesline with Dynamite had enough Donald Stretch to apply on Smash. And then you made a bet. Randy Savage retained the WF title, beating Akeem by disqualification in 10-13 after Akeem threw referee Tim White out of the ring. And all of these matches, the whole card aired on the uh, November 8th episode of Primetime. Yep. Had Rock and Robin worked any TV before this? Yes, she had, she had been on. Okay. But that was a cool deal there. I always thought that that show was cool because as soon as they were coming through a, you know, a plastic tunnel. Yes. And they did that again when they went back to Paris in uh, 8990. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Which with that's my favorite one where, where you have rocker. What was it? Rockers Rougeau's with the girls in the, in the neon wigs. Are you muted? No, you're not. No, I'm here. I'm here. I'm, okay. I'm, I was thinking, thinking of something. Um, <laughs> okay. Should I stop? Uh, Boston. No, no, you're good. Okay. I right, so Boston on October the 8th. You're less than 5,000 fans. Smallest crowd in Boston in years. As Blue Blazer pin Steve Lombardi, Brian Blair and Iron Mike Sharp, Scott Casey over Pete Doherty, Haku over Hillbilly Jim, Dino Bravo over Coco Beware, Hearts over the Rougeos with Brother Love as a referee, and he took a great bump in second ref count of the fall. Warrior over Honky by DQ, and Bad News to be Savage by Countout. They're doing the title can change hands by Countout steps for return Savage Bad News matches and Bravo, Dino Bravo Savage matches. We'll do the world class um, finish of title matches there, I say. Mm-hmm. Where your title could change hands in that direction. Well, they, that's why they separated from the NWA, Chris. Don't you remember? Absolutely. San Jose, that same night, drew 1,500 fans. Not good. As uh, the Powers of Pain beat the Bolsheviks, Duggan over DVI by DQ, Hercules over Patera, uh, Paul Roma over Dane Davis, and Coco Samoa over Bulldog Bob Brown. Most of the rest of the California shows during that week drew around 500 fans. That's why they're C team shows. Toronto saw Dino Bravo, Randy Sash by Canada, Warrior over, it says monkey here. <laughs> uh, honky by monkey DQ. Bad news, man. <laughs> Bad news over Coco. Baku, so Haku, over Hippo the Gym. Blue Blazer over Steve Lombardi. Brian Blair over Mike Sharp. Scott Case over Richard Chalon. And the hearts of the Rougeaus. And it Edmonton. On October 10th, drew a whopping 15,000 fans and 225,000 Canadian for the gate. Well, Hogan made his debut in this city. Results saw Kurt Henning over Sam Houston, two stars. You wonder who these results in. Uh, Terry Taylor over Jim <laughs> Brunzel and a dud. Bruce Beefcake over Ron Bass and a dud. Jake over Rude, star and a half. Jim Powers over Sandy Beach, dud. Midnight Rockers over, well, not just the Rockers now, Rockers over Conquistadors, star and a half. And Hogan over Baseman. <laughs> what a great OCR era. Baseman. Bossman by Canada, one star. Hogan drew a huge crowd, but really didn't get anywhere in the reaction expected. Well, 
Maybe he wasn't the only thing that drew. Maybe they didn't. fans just wanted to come out and see some wrestling that night in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Like young Trent Walters here. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's his first appearance in Edmonton in the you know four years they've been running there. Mm-hmm. And talk about how shows tight. It's coming back to two shows per night with the deeper lineups because the shows of late have been drawing well. It's the same thing about this time last year. Although last year they made up for it by running all these double shots. It looks like they could, don't have the double schedule for this year. Well, I mean, they were doing a lot of different shows in this time period. And in, in some spring, summer, early fall of 88, all these going to high schools and fairs and stuff like that. Just trying to expand that, expand that brand, Bix. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. For your, uh, what, what was the words they'd use and then the other promotions would use about running a show? Your uh, civic or charitable organization, something like that? Well, it's Frank Dusick running their uh, their operation there or something. That was, you knew Frank Dusick was in the territory when you start seeing that. Yeah. Gets complicated, though, when uh, Chris Adams is running against him and they're both on the same show plugging their own shows. <laughs> Yeah, two things you know, you know, when Frank Dusick's around when they're doing that, and you know Jim Ross around when there's a hotline instituted into a promotion. So there you go. Uh, Titan has made informal talks to several athletic commissions inquiring whether the commission will allow Russell to use blood capsules. It appears because crowds are shrinking since the heels don't have heat. They want to do stuff with blood again, but they don't want to use blade, even though several commissions are so only against it. And it could result in bad publicity since they've publicly been telling politicians that they would never allow their wrestlers to do something so barbaric. It occasionally still did, but it's been a distinct rarity of late. Apparently, the blood capsules hadn't been used in the past in wrestling history, but they were so primitive and ineffective that the practice was quickly dropped in favor of blading. Hmm. Where, where do you stand on blood capsules? I mean, does it really matter, or, you, or do you want you, you got to have the real blood? I mean, the problem is that it just doesn't look good, was my understanding, as far as why you don't use any kind of stage blood in a context where you want it to make it look like the blood is flowing. Yeah. There is a contrast. Yeah, absolutely. I don't mind blading as long as everyone's getting tested and careful. Yeah. Let's go to the first torch. Credit George has not been on TV in weeks. So Wade guesses he's finally gone, although he didn't mind him. He's replaced by Sean Mooney, basically. So, uh, yeah, credit to George. Uh, off doing other things. And there's uh, Wade has his son on Terry Taylor, Vix. Terry Taylor's in a curious angle. He's managed by Bobby Heenan as a heel, but is being ridiculed by Heenan, a la Rick Steiner and Kevin Sullivan. I don't know where this is going, and it's gotten mixed reactions for phone conversations with readers quote-unquote, but anything Taylor is involved with, I usually think is funny, and this is no exception. should be interesting to see where this little red rooster angle heads. Excuse me. Uh, most have speculated that Taylor will probably turn on Heenan down the line. Well, he does. But uh, let's, let's go to the Brother Love Show, which aired during our week, where Bobby Heenan and Terry Taylor are together, and uh, the seeds are being planted here as early as now. So let's go to the clip. Look at that, that phony smile. I mean, now how can you right. say that? He's not a wrestler. What should he be built, be built like the ultimate warrior? No, but it's just like he's had one or two mini meals hey, at the expense of the general public. You know, 
seems sincere to me. In order to love, you must have a big brain. <laughs> and speaking of brain, my guest this week is the biggest brain in the World Wrestling Federation. Welcome, Brother Brown. Thank you very, very much. You know, I am just full of love. It's just bubbling out of me right now because, you see, there's been some changes in the Bobby Heenan family. I'm going to increase the size of the Bobby Heenan family. What I am going to do in the weeks and months to come is add new members, new members, and do the most I can to spread love. Oh, my. And at this particular point, I am going to bring out a gentleman. Now, this gentleman is the newest member of the Bobby Heenan family. Now, he's limited when it comes to wrestling. He's limited when it comes to size. He's limited with a one-in-loss record. But I'm going to make this man the next big superstar in the world of professional wrestling. And if the gentleman could come out right now, his name is Mr. Terry Taylor. Terry Taylor. Thank you, Brother Taylor. Thank you, Brother Love. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, as you can see, the man is limited when it comes to size. I'm not too small, I'm all right, about the right size. But you're not big like Andre the Giant. That's true, that's true. And it's, he's limited when it comes to being muscular. Well, I'm pretty muscular, 240 pounds. But you're not cut up and you're not that strong as ravishing Rick Rude. That's true, no. And you don't possess the ability in the ring with martial arts as the great King Haku. That's true, but I'm a pretty good wrestler on my own you're going to become better. And I don't know how much pain you can endure, what your threshold is, which is limited. I mean, your one and loss record isn't that great. Well, I haven't lost them all. But you haven't won them all. That's true, Brain, that's true. And I am going to take you to the top of this great sport of professional wrestling. Because you see, as limited as you are, by being short, by being not that muscular, by not having a great, great gift at this sport of wrestling. There is one thing though, one added factor, one ingredient that will make you a superstar, that will make you a great star, and that is me, oh. Bobby the Brain Heenan. So I suggest you follow me, young man. Follow me to start up. Ever stop smiling? He's a happy guy. And you say he's sincere. We'll be right back.
All right, Vix. <laughs> what a way to, to kickstart this angle, huh? Man, watching that, two things stick out. One, you can tell Terry Taylor has already rubbed people the wrong way in the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> Did that long. Just the the framing, even before you get into the rest of the angle, just like, oh, he clearly thinks highly of himself. You think he, you think he had mentioned that he had worked in the big time and now come here. Mm. More about that later. And also, holy shit, does he sound Southern here compared to everyone else. <laughs> he doesn't sound like Paul Worthen Taylor here, does he? Or, or Terrence, like... either. <laughs> no. No, he should have been Paul Worthington Taylor as the <laughs> New York Foundation instead of Terrence. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, quite the angle there with the newsletter darling Terry Taylor. Too bad he wasn't at UAWF, huh? He couldn't be given all the scoops. Yeah, his, his buddy, though, was, yeah. Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr., professionally known as Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert. Yes. All right, Matt Watch, speaking of, NBC has picked up the 1989 Slammy Awards as a late-night weekend special. Maybe Tully and Arn will sing United We Stand. Speaking of Arn and Tully, they made their debut of the week due to meager reaction. <laughs> United We Stand. Slam, there is no 1989 Slammy Awards on NBC. I saw this. I'm like, well, what a lost opportunity. Makes you wonder why they didn't do it. That's a shame. I wonder if it just turns into a Saturday night's main event or something. I'm sure that's what it would, what it would have been. But that's a shame. And in closing, in the wake of the Ben Johnson controversy, those you don't know, Ben Johnson was the uh, gold medalist in the track and field in the Olympics, 88 Olympics, setting major world records found out that he was uh, a massive steroid abuser. Hulk Hogan is talking about coming out with a book on how to get big without steroids. I'm sure some of you will find that humorous. Uh, 1988 picks. When at the time period that Dr. George Zaharian was supplying uh, him with uh, with steroids? I mean, that he could be charged with, yes, because the 88 is when the law changes. Yes. I wonder if Tony Bolin has anything to say (laughs) about this. Taryn Bostic. Dan Brower. <laughs> Which is funny because there was actually a wrestler working as Dan Brower. Dan, uh, Dan Greer worked no, as no, Dan Brower. No, Dan Brower is, according to the facts from Elzer Demushnik, Dan Brower was receiving some of Hogan's packages, and that's why they're addressed to him. <laughs> but I'm saying there was a wrestler, Dan Greer. No, it's the wrestler the Dan Brower. Oh, so it was Dan Greer. Okay. I didn't realize it was Dan. That was Dan Greer, but yes. How about that? Uh, Lord, Lord, Lord. Hogan and steroids. Well, it's halftime now. So have some great nineteen eighty commercials. We'll come back with halftime, where we'll talk about the Patreon show. We'll plug out WTV, private internet access, all the other stuff, and then we'll come back and go international, where we don't have a whole hell of a lot going on there. Oh, we got some interesting New Japan stuff. We got some Stampede stuff and a little bit of Metzka. And then we'll have the territories after that. And then who knows? All of them more after the break. Is it possible for hair to have too much body? Krell says no. 
So they've built more bodybuilders than ever into my brand new Prell bodybuilding system. New Prell shampoos in even more body for more fullness. The new Prell conditioner enhances all that body with better manageability. Because when it comes to body, Prell says, the more the better. At Kentucky Fried Chicken, we do it right. Chicken right. The deadline is Monday. It's true. Chevy's extended the rebates through Monday. And here at Guatney Chevrolet, to clear out all the 88s by closing time Monday, we're passing on special factory to dealer bonus incentives that mean through Monday you can own a new Chevy S10 for just $63.88. Through Monday you can own a fully equipped full-size Cheyenne half-ton pickup for a low $94.88. Through Monday, you can own a top-of-the-line, fully-equipped new Silverado for a low $11,088. But only through Monday. The deadline's Monday at Guatney Chevrolet, Memphis. The Treasures of Danzig, the only complete Jewish communal collection to survive the Holocaust. They remind us of a frightening time in history when man's inhumanity to man was never more brutally enacted. I'm Denise Dubois. And I'm Dick Hawley at the Memphis State University Gallery inviting you to join us for Danzig 1939, Treasures of a Destroyed Community, tonight at 5. Take an inside look at this remarkable exhibit with us here on TV5. Join us. All right, we're back. I hope you enjoyed all those great 1988 commercials. This is a fifth and a half time segment of the show. We'll begin talking about our Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And of course, we dropped the latest show a couple weeks ago on uh, part two of our look at uh, the WCW negotiations in 2000, where lots of parties were involved and they're trying to buy the company, mostly involving Eric Bischoff, but also World Wrestling Federation. And, um, Interesting two-part series that we did there as a uh, little um, prequel to the shows we did last year on the 2001 Fusion Negotiations. So uh, if you haven't listened to those shows, please listen to them because lots of interesting information on that show. You know, uh, we go to the Nitro book. We have the trades. We got the other stuff in the newsletters. So you get an amalgamation of all kinds of information on this show and uh, – yeah, really interesting stuff, especially uh, if you're into the business of wrestling. So everybody go check that out for $5 a month. And, of course, as we announced on that show and here last week, we are devoting our final three shows of the year, the October, November, December shows, to 25 years of Montreal. And we've actually started uh, recording the first show as uh, we got an early jump on that. So... Um, we basically have talked about the first couple of weeks in the whole Bret Hart saga, which started at the end of October, going into the first of November '97. And uh, yeah, it's also—I mean, it's, it's just a very interesting show already, especially when you look at all the stuff that that went to went on regarding Bret actually agreeing to terms with WCW, and uh, all the information there, the whys. You know, why it happened. You know, we have Brett's Calgary Sun column 
and an alleged Bret Hart Calgary Sun column, which got leaked <laughs> to the newsletters, which is way out there. And uh, there's all kinds of stuff so far. It's, it's, it's a really interesting look at, at Brett. And also it takes a, you know, a look at him the year previous when he signed the big 20-year contract with WF. And, you know, there's de- theories abound about, you know, why these things were happening and why WF was going to let Brett walk. So we get in all that. And, uh, of course, the rise of Shawn Michaels and Degeneration X is part of this as well. So... Finals a month, folks. This is going to be a great series. I can already tell it right now. So the finals a month, you definitely want to get in on this, especially if you're a Bret Hart fan or even a Shawn Michaels fan. They're just a fan of that era of wrestling in general. You don't want to miss this information. It's great stuff. 25 years, hard to believe. So $5 at patreon.com slash between the sheets gets you access to that. And all the other shows that we've done in our now six full years of the Patreon as we started year seven with this first show that we're doing with Bret. So uh, a ton of audio for $5 a month. And, of course, you can do that. Or you could do the annual, which is $50.40 for the annual uh, subscription. Save you a little bit of money, 16%. So um, jump on that as well. Yes. And (laughs) also remember, once PayPal gave us the option, we immediately switched over. We now have it set to what they call subscription billing, which means no more first-of-the-month bullshit. You, you, there. No one will ever get double charged or anything. You sign up if you do monthly. You are billed on the same day each month. If you sign up for annual, you would be billed again on the anniversary of that a year later. Absolutely. All right. Of course, there are the other tiers. Twenty five dollars. You can pick pick a show for the week for that. Now have two shows in your mind because uh, there could be a chance that the show you want to do could be already taken on the calendar. Or it could be something we've already talked about, as we've done uh, seven plus years now at patreon.com slash twin sheets, or the Patreon, uh, you know, the, the, the main show altogether, excuse me. And um, so, yeah, there, there's there's something that could have fallen through the cracks you may not know about. And uh, I did send you, you did get my chronological list, correct, Bix? Yes. Okay. So Bix has the chronological list at, that was updated up until uh, this week that we're doing this show. So, um, yeah, so there is a list now that is in his possession, not just mine, of every show we've done, dated and everything, as far as the weeks. So, um, get that information to us within 30 days, follow the protocol on the Patreon website. Of course, you know all the other stuff, Wednesday to Tuesday on the timeline, 10-year rules in effect, all that other stuff. So, uh, you do all that, and we should be able to get your show taken care of. $50 allows you to send the first segment of the show if you choose, and 100 for the whole show if you choose. That's all optional at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix, who got this week as our new and or returning patrons? All right, we've got a bunch we would like to thank. Well, that's awesome. Yes. Sean Harden. Thanks, Sean. Tommy Colosi. Thanks, Tommy. William Webb. Thanks, William. Dan Drennan. Thanks, Dan. Chris Calamita. Thanks, Chris. Sam Bennett. Thanks, Sam. The Modern Day Mataraz. Thanks, Modern Day Mataraz. Future Recluse. Thanks, Future Recluse. Robert G. James. Thanks, Robert G. James. I was going to say Brian G. James. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that crossed my mind, too. I don't think he's paying for this podcast, though. 
And uh, well, actually, maybe no, listen I'm, to it. I was reading out of order, actually. Uh, D- Daniel Cookler, of course. Danny, thanks, Danny. Uh, keeping that record going. And an annual subscription from Jeremy Miller. I don't think the one from Growing Pains. <laughs> well, maybe it is. Who knows? Thanks, Jeremy. A lot of familiar names there. So a lot of names that have probably come back, yeah. that have left us and come back. Uh, and we, you know, encourage that. I mean, we would love for you to stay monthly, like Joe Sposto and the others that we mentioned uh, recently, as uh, have been there for every month for the beginning. But we understand. We understand that there's other things you may do with your money and this, that, and the other. So uh, come with us for a month or two, take a break, come back. You know, we don't, we're not going to discourage that. We, so thank you all, new patrons, old patrons, patrons that have returned, patrons that have been there from the beginning and never left. We thank all of you for your support at patreon.com slash between the sheets. But especially thank you, Ben Seaver. <laughs> yes. All right, Big IWTV this week. What's going on with them? All right, let's see. I realized I did not open the VOD yet to check, but uh, live stream-wise, coming up this week, it says on Tuesday at 8 Eastern, there's GCW Settlement Series 4. Uh, there's no lineup, and there's nothing on GCW's Twitter about the show existing. Well, I guess we'll find out. Maybe it's a, it's a big surprise show. I don't know. Um, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's happening. Um, very weird, though. I'm pulling, I'm pulling up their Patreon for a section to see if there's like a ticket pre-order post. Man, for there. someone who's supposed to be such a big shill and apologist for GCW, you should know all this information, Bix. I know. You would think <laughs> so. Boy, they must not. Be, they, they, you must have got on the bad side. No, I don't think I did, but... You're not co-opted media anymore, I guess, huh? Uh, if I ever was. But anyway, yeah, that's apparently happening. Um, I guess we'll see Tuesday. Then, uh, as far as other stuff, uh, Newcastle Pro Wrestling has a show on uh, Saturday that'll be airing at 5 a.m. Eastern Live, for time zone reasons. Obviously, as we get more... Uh, international uh, action live on IWTV. And uh, at least from the lineup they have so far, Mick Moretti appears to be the most notable or recognizable name on there. Uh, yes, because it's, oh, it's a PWA Black Label versus Newcastle Pro show. That's why. Uh, and then what else do we have here? Invictus Pro has a show Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern from the Mecca of Independent Wrestling, the beautiful... Uh, Knights of Columbus slash uh, Phil Sheridan building in Ridgefield Park, New Jersey for a show that includes uh, either Surreal defending the Invictus Pro women's title. And that appears to be it as far as live streams. Of course, wrestling open, as always, Thursday night, but the lineup is usually finalized like a day or so out, if not less. And that's it as far as live streams. Looking at VOD, looks like a lot of archival CZW has gone up. Okay. As happens sometimes. Oh, new uh, Zona 23, or Zona Vienti Trace, went up from uh, August 21st. That's probably worth checking out. Uh, includes uh, Mr. Condor, Diego, uh, Miedo Extremo, Aeroboy, and others. So that looks 
It looks like it's worth watching in the junkyard. And uh, had the new The Life of gone up yet? No, it hadn't yet, because that went up October 1st. So that's uh, Veda Scott and Speedball Mike Bailey are the subjects of the latest The Life of. That our dear friend uh, John Philip Havage is the... What, what is he technically? The director? Producer? Both? The head muckety-muck. Overseer? I guess. Yeah. So that is up. And then, yeah, let's pick a random CZW to look at. Or semi-random. Uh, we've got CZW in Germany in 2011. We've got... I don't know what Terminal Death Rewind is. Uh, let's go with CZW Decision 2008 for the heck of it. Uh, that has... Oh, of course we get another match between Drake Younger and Brain Damage. Well, they're natural rivals. Yes, it's a four-way for the heavyweight Iron Man and ultraviolet underground titles. Fan bring the weapon. Fans bring the weapons. Brain Damage versus Drake Younger versus Necro Butcher versus Danny Havoc. Uh, this is a match. Ryan Eagles and Sammy Callahan versus Jesse McKay, a.k.a. Billy Kay, Lufisto and Pinky Sanchez, B-Boy and Devin Moore, Blackout versus Hate Club. Uh, oh, God, I forgot that Beef Wellington and Greg Excellent were called Two Girls, One Cup. Mm-hmm. Very topical at the time. Yes, and they take on uh, Team Andrew, Andy Sumner, and Drew Gulak. Uh, also, the opener, featuring some recognizable names, as Joe Gacy, Alex Cologne, and Emo, I don't remember who that is, take on the team of JJ, excuse me, LJ Cruz, HDTV, and Adam Cole. He was a youngster back then. I think he, that might be his first year in the business, right? Probably. Let's see real quick. Adam Cole's pro debut... It's April 26, 2008, and the date on this one is October 12th. So, yeah, less than six months in. So, if you need your Adam Cole fix while he's injured, you can check out some Bay Bay Adam Cole. Da, 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 or, you, da. or you watch him on Twitch. Yes. Did you see Trevor James tweet about him the other day? <laughs> I think I probably missed it. So he joked, and then someone made a, co- a little comic strip of the well, one panel, but still. He joked something to the effect of, I picture the AEW locker room being a constant blood brawl while Adam Cole sits in the corner playing a Nintendo Switch saying to himself, oh, Kirby, will you ever get full? <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Oh, there's a show on here with Kevin Steen as the, thumb- as the thumbnail from 04. Oh, Chris, we've got Javier versus James Newblood. How about on that? CZW Breaking Point, Let the Chaos Begin, favorite of Rob Naylor. And... Was it on air or off air that uh, last week that Eric brought up Javier and James Newblood? It was off air, I think. I think so. Yes. Uh, Jimmy Ray versus Ian Knox with Sunday Dud as referee. Uh... Chris Cash and J.C. Bailey versus Derek Frazier and Sean Bissop versus CKNY versus Hate, versus Hate Club versus versus Kings of Wrestling versus All Money and Legal versus DJ Hyde and John Dahmer. Uh, Nate Webb's on the card. Chris Hero versus Homicide for the Iron Man title. Jay Lethal, Roderick Strong. 
uh, Messiah versus Chaos and more. So, you know, if you want to check out some older CZW, there's more and more going up on uh, IWTV. So, if you are not already a subscriber, use code BTSPOD at sign up and we will get a referral fee for each month as long as you remain a paid subscriber. So that's independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. All right, today's episode of Between the Sheets sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you're using Condino mode, your internet source provider storing your browsing data, many times even selling it. But Private Internet Access can help. Private Internet Access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private Internet Access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices. It rocks off privacy policy, open source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mac. If you sign up with Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's talk about that, shall we? we got three different options for you. We got a regular monthly option of eleven ninety five above. We have a yearly option, which is it gets it down to three dollars and thirty three cents a month, or thirty nine ninety five a year. Or you can get the number one deal, the best deal. You get three years and four free months along with that at a dollar ninety eight a month, seventy nine dollars for three years, eighty three percent off. The best damn deal there is for private internet access. That's so much more expensive than it virtually every other VPN on the market. And if you get it right now, you can take private internet access 30-day risk-free challenge. Try it out for 30 days. See if you like it. If not, just turn it for a full refund. So how do you get that, you ask? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1993 for our show. And we have some interesting stuff to talk about. World Championship Wrestling, we'll go talk about them. As uh, not a whole hell of a lot going on there. We have a couple of Crystal Chandelier shows, Bex, to talk about. As our week uh, has two, sh- two of those shows. And we'll have uh, a few other things. We got... Uh, some problems in the, in the Metroplex, including Big D, talk about. We got the debut of Jeff Cohen's championship wrestler from Indiana. We'll talk about that. And Burt Prentice is involved in it at this time. We got Memphis, where the Moondogs are uh, in Memphis. Well, one of the Moondogs returns in Memphis. One was still there. And uh, we have an interesting turn also to talk about as well. Daryl Van Horn makes his, uh, not I don't want to say his proper debut, but let's just say we have the first time Daryl Van Horn met Bob Cottle on Spooky Mountain Wrestling Television, so we'll have that. Uh, we got all kinds of other indie news to talk about um, all over the, 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 the country, basically, and even news on e- uh, the fledgling ESPN2 possibly carrying some wrestling, but not what you might think. We have uh, Lucha stuff to talk about, as always. AAA uh, doing some, some good business and having some strong shows. Pancrase. We've got an early Pancrase show to talk about. we got the hardcore Indies in Japan looking strong. 
We got uh, all Japan's in the in the middle of uh, and each fan in the middle of interesting tours, some interesting names and matchups. We'll talk about that. Antonio Noki, yes, just recently passed Antonio Noki. Major controversy. What a shock. We'll talk about that. And in the World Wrestling Federation, we got the debut vignette of one Double J, Jeff Jarrett. So we'll have that. We'll have uh, Sabu getting a tryout at the uh, Raw tapings. We got Crush turning heel on Raw, on Randy Savage. We'll talk about that. But the big drama in our week at WWF revolves around radio WWF. Jim Ross uh, gives an update on his future in the company, and it don't look good. Shawn Michaels is interviewed live by Jim Ross, and he's got some interesting things to talk about as he's on his sabbatical. But the big one, Randy Savage tees off on Hulk Hogan. And, buddy, it is one. We've kind of talked. We talked about the week after this week before on the show. Now we have the week proper. So we'll go full force with this one. Well, and remember so, – uh we may need to tweak things a little bit because I do have the transcript from Wrestling Flyer. Well, I got, I mean, the whole shebang from the radio interview, so. But I'm saying I have the verbatim transcript. Well, it's also in the torch as well. But I put the, I got the Observer, um, you know, summary of everything. Okay, we'll see then. Uh... But yeah, the torch had it almost pretty much, you know, I guess verbatim as well in their review. But anyway. We'll have that, and we will be joined by uh, one of our dear friends who hasn't been on in a while. Al Getz makes his return to Between Sheets, and uh, he's got a book to talk about. So uh, we'll talk about that and a lot more next week on Between the Sheets. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper is at BT Sheets Pod. Bix at David Bix. And uh, Bix, anything going on in your world this week? Um, not quite. We'll see. Soon. All right, well, Antonio Noki. Let's talk about him real quick. He just recently passed away. Um, he's a guy who's always talked about in this show, and uh, for, for various reasons. Um, you know, he had been in bad health for a little while there, and, uh, of course, everybody thought he was about to... Uh, He's going to pass away months ago when he got COVID and everything, but uh, he survived that and lived a little bit longer. But uh, it's, it was interesting to see people, you know, tweeting about Anoki because in, in the current wrestling world, that world fandom, in the last 20 years, Anoki is rep as not been the best because you know he's he got the blame and rightfully so in a lot of ways for you know new japan falling off in the 2000s but i mean he's one of the greatest wrestlers that ever lived and like i said on twitter you know when he died i think there was no wrestler that was ever better at being who they were supposed to be than Antonio Noki was where, where do you that. stand on Anoki? We'll expand on that. Well, uh, uh, okay, Anoki. Anoki was the guy. I mean, he was the legit. His gimmick was he was the legit guy in in Japanese wrestling. I mean, and he was God, you know. And he 
portrayed that character better than anybody else probably could have done. And that's why he was so beloved by the fans and, you know, and people, people that were getting into wrestling and idolize this man. Um, because he was Antonio Noki. He was always Antonio Noki. No matter what. He was Antonio Noki. I mean, he 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 believed that what his character was, he was that guy. But he did, but there have been others in wrestling that have done that too, but he did it next level than just by anybody else, in my opinion. And I've watched you know, I'm, I'm in '88 now. I've kind of took a, a small break, but I've watched every New Japan television show, and you know, c- classic stuff from '82 to now, now early '88, and the past year, year and a half or so. And believe me when I tell you, I mean, Hogan and WF at his peak, yeah, there was nobody. Nobody like Antonio Noki were in that time frame, in that promotion. He was God in so many ways. And, and, and even when they had all their problems, you know, especially in 85, they had all their major issues. He was still over. The fans still loved him. And, you know, he they weathered the storm. And here's another thing, too. Look at all the shit he did behind the scenes over the years. And he was still able to come back and be stronger in the fans' eyes. Despite a very public embezzlement scandal. Yes, where he lost his power. And he came back and got more power when he came back. He's just an an amazing, amazing individual. And just the way he carried himself, everything. You know, he was... I mean, he was who he was. He was supposed to be, you know, and just, uh, I mean, uh, the heat for his matches. Again, Antonio Hickey was not the greatest wrestler in the world. Absolutely not. But the heat for his matches were all, was always insane. And all those great feuds and everything, man. I mean, just, just phenomenal. Just phenomenal, uh, phenomenal person inside the wrestling ring. Outside the rest of the ring, yeah, he's got a lot, he had a lot of flaws, believe me. But uh, inside the ring, I mean, good lord, he's he's top tier in my mind of of professional wrestlers. For me, the thing I've always wanted to see more of is like JWA era stuff because well, he's I mean, because young he's not the guy there. Much, no, I know, but like that's part of it to see what he was like as a wrestler when he wasn't the guy to see more of it because stuff like, I mean, the door, the door funk junior match is phenomenal, you know? Oh, yeah. Him and Briscoe. And there's other stuff that's out there, you know, it's, and it's a different Anoki. Like you said, he's not the guy yet. So I've, I've wanted to see more of that, but you know, like at least with the Baba tag team, there's very little that's out there. That's complete for now, but it'll make its way out eventually, I guess. Well, maybe who knows, but but yeah, so uh, definitely a big loss in the wrestling world with him passing away, and um, yeah, I mean it's uh, Bob has gone, and Oki's gone. I mean that's it. I mean that that the pioneers of of the current era of Japanese professional wrestling is gone. 
and it's just it's just wild that uh that that's happened and it was like he died on the 62nd anniversary of his entering the wrestling business too like the day that him and baba showed up at the dojo that was the day he died 62 years later that's crazy well no it so. was the anniversary of his debut match i think oh are you, oh i knew it was something like that let me double check i believe it was uh i thought i thought it was his debut in the dojo it depends on which so in japan time he died october 1st and the debut is listed as september 30th but it's you get the idea yeah so i saw some people say it was the 60th anniversary but that's definitely wrong yep and um real quick before we uh in this segment we got a new show on Vice TV, Bix. Tales from the Territories. I got nothing and, to do uh, with it. What are you asking me for? I'm just saying. I want to ask what you thought about it. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, we kind of talked. You, um, because you watched the first showing and I watched the the, the repeat, hmm. uh, the replay, and uh, you know, you only talked about you know you had, were watching like the first couple segments of it. I want to get your thoughts on the whole show. What, what, how do you, what do you think of this of this show and this concept? I thought it was fine. Um, I guess because maybe it's less over told, and that's not the right way to put it. It's a story that less people have heard and have heard less. I thought the Mario Galento part was the best part of it overall. Um, but it was fine. You know, it was you know it was neat seeing the kind of some of the dark side elements mixed in with the more like this is not authoritative these are wrestlers telling tall tales like presentation i thoroughly enjoyed it i thought it was fantastic hour of television i i would put i would put that episode above most of the dark sides personally really because i i thought that the whole the panel there the, the round table and who it was and then they told some great stories i was too damn short i mean that was a, that was a problem but, um, yeah, for that I, format, cutting it down to 44 minutes makes it feel over-edited. Yeah, it was too short. Whereas, that, it, that, because with a documentary, you're cutting and pasting the talking heads and stuff. But this format, if we're comparing it like to the WWE Classics uh, Legends Roundtables, those were always, what, like 90 minutes? With the extra yeah. mixed in? So, prob- so still well over an hour. To, you know, for the roundtable part. And we know those were edited still fairly heavily from the actual sessions, but those yeah. definitely felt more continuous. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the one quibble I have about it. But, I mean, what I loved about it was, I mean, we got a, st- some new stories out of there, you know. So, oh, and, the blowgun, yeah. I mean, just new new stories, you know, and that's that's always great to have. And yeah, that, that's the frustrating thing is what, what more we could have had if it was a two-hour show or something like that. But, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, um, you know, they're going to do one on Kaufman in Memphis coming up. That's the next one as we record this. So that should be interesting you know, to hear all that. I don't know if it's going to be the whole show. but It is the it whole definitely... show. Apparently it wasn't the original plan, but they realized they had so much they made it an episode. Well, that should be great. I mean, one one whole show devoted to that topic. I, I, that should be that should be something. 
And who know, and maybe I mean who knows what we get out of that? We got Lawler's version, but we have Jerry Jarrett's version of that. And Dutch was heavily involved in the area at that time. So and Jimmy Hart. So it's going to be interesting to hear that hear that hear that show. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I heard the world class and mid south ones that's going to be coming up are going to be really good too. So yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to this. I I was very very happy with that first show. So uh, I'm pumped. Yeah, uh, this from, is my type of stuff right here. From hearing Evan talking about it, I feel like I'm maybe looking forward to Portland the most. Yeah, I forgot about Portland was involved too. Yeah. Because also they kind of dug deep as far as who to put in it, and uh, it, it Mike Masters is actually one of the guys on the panel of all people, and he just died. Yeah, and yeah, Rocky Jones. Yeah, I think the uh, Evan it was on uh, Laps Fan explained how I think it was after hearing him on Jim Valley's podcast that they went to him and just how valuable he was. Because he was, because of when he was around and being right in the middle of all the awful <laughs> drama with Buddy Rose and Tony Rayborn and all that. Yeah, he was at that time. I mean, he wasn't there at a long time, but he was there at a pivotal time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it should be quite quite the series. So I'm looking forward to that. All right. Well, that's it for us in this segment. Let's get back to the rest of the show. Well, let's go international now, and we start in the land of the rising sun in All Japan Pro Wrestling, where we had a couple of interesting shows during our week. In Azawa City Gym on October the 7th, we have Mitsuo Momoto over Shiyoshikakuchi, Isama Teranushi, Teranushi, Teranishi over Tetsumi Kirahara, Akira Tawe over Matoshi Akuma, Doug Furness going to a double count out with Shinichi Nakano, Tiger Mask Masawa over Joel Deaton. Dan Crawford and Danny Spivey over Sao Takagi and Shinji Takano. Giant Baba and Hiroshi Wajima over Gorosurumi and Rush Kimura. The Rock and Roll Express over Kenta Kabashi and Mighty Inoue. Then we have uh, Revolution. Tenukurichiro, Sansan Fuyuki, and Toshika Kawada over Masafuchi, Takashi Shikawa, and Great Kabuki. And then a main event of John Tenta, Jumbo Shiruta, and Yoshiaki Hatsu over Abdul the Butcher. Hoss Deaton and Greg Brown. <laughs> Greg Brown is a was a local Columbus based uh, Oats trainee wrestler who would get a random tour with All Japan because of his connections with the Oatses and some of the other people in Georgia. And then we'll have another show to talk about here on October 11th in Miyakonajo, Miyakonajo City Gym. We have Mitsumoto over Shoshikuchi, Mayanaway over Matushikuma, Haruka Aiken over Kenta Kabashi, hmm. Wajima and Kabuki over the Deatons, Crawford and Spivey over Asatakagi and Shinji Takano, Rock and Roll Express over Samateri Nishi and Masafuchi, Jaya Baba and John Tenta over Gorosurumi and Rosha Kamura, Revolution, Tenrufuki and Kawada over Kiritawe, Shinichi Nakano and Takar Masawa, and then Jumbo, Takashi Shikawa and Yoshaki Yatsu over Abdullah, Doug Furness, and Greg Brown. <laughs> so, had Brody been the hookup for the Georgia guys, or um, no, Blackwell, or I think it's Blackwell. Okay, because you know some of those guys are coming in '87. Hmm. Oh, before, so before Brody's working there. Before Brody, because Grizzly Boone has a tour there. Blackwell himself, Rich, Jerry Oates. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah, I mean, there's some of the guys coming in there, but you got De- the Deatons, you got Greg Brown. They're all they're all Georgia Indy guys here. And Abdullah, of course, he's a Georgia guy, but he's Abdullah. I mean, yeah, interesting. Interesting names on this show. Greg Brown. New Japan Pro Wrestling. Their latest tour started October 7th at Cork and Hall with Dr. Destillians and Bam Bam Bigelow as the headliners. They're going to have the return of Antonio as the main thing, but Dave's told it's really no big deal right now. Well, he doesn't return as the, the, the main thing. Tetsumi Fujinami missed the entire tour. He's wrestling in the United States right now and will tour Germany as well. Main attraction this tour is Anoki will headline singles matches against seven different wrestlers. Dr. Def, Bigelow, Shoshu, King Kamura, Seishikaguchi, Basaino, Yoshaki Fujiwara. Anoki pinned Bigelow in something like two minutes in the first event, then won by four for Sanguchi in their second event because Sanguchi was injured. All right, so we got the uh, October 7th show at Corken Hall. Akira Nagami and Takuya Zuka over Kenichi Oya and Asama Suda. Tesla Shigoto over Kensuke Sasaki. Asama Kido over Black Cat. Keiichi Yamato over Biff Wellington. Kale Kamura over Tony St. Clair. Masaito over George Takano. Kaneka Paraguayo over Hirosaito and Kunai Kobayashi. Dr. Death over Super Strong Machine. Hiroshi Hase and Riki Choshu over Shiroko Shinaka and Yoshaki Fujiwara. And Anoki and Fujinami over Crusher Bam Bam Bigelow and Stephen Casey, the British version. Then they ran Cork in again three days later, where Anoki beat Bigelow in 202 with Nidrip off the top. So he beat him in two and two. And before sellout 2160. Where we had Ken Skiver with Nor Suzuki in your opening match. Hmm. Tessa should go over Kiranagami. Katara Hoshino and Samakito or Black Cat and Don Arakawa. Wilfontaine went to a double count with Hiro Saito. George Kano King Kimura over Kunakobayashi Super Strong Machine. Yoshaki Fujiwara over Tony St. Clair. Kaneka Pedro Aguayo over Keiichi Yamana and Shiroko Shinaka. Masahino Riki Choshu over Stephen Casey and Dr. Dusty Williams. And then Anoki over Bigelow. Any thoughts? Oh, Bigelow's not in Atlanta, huh? I'm sure nobody will say anything about him that might make him mad later. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, no, Flair would, no, Flair, nobody would do something like that, Bix, why he's not there. Hmm. What are you talking about? But I think it's pretty obvious here why he's doing these quick jobs that he's expected to be an NWA guy. Yep. Uh, yeah, there's that. All right, all Japan women, Mika Suzuki and Hisaku Uno, better known as Akira Hokuto, won the end of your tag tournament being the Fire Jets, Yumiko Hota, Mitsuko Nishiwaki in the finals on October 10th at Corken Hall. Also in the car, Chigusa Nagaya pinned, excuse me, Toriyo Yamada. And earlier in the car, Suzuki and Uno earned their spot in the tournament finals beating Bull Nakano and Dynamite Jack. Dynamite Jack was amassed as Crane Yu, who was Dup Masamoto's tag partner. In 1983, 1984, before retiring. Wait, they already did an unretirement at this point? I didn't realize that. Yeah. How about that? But yeah, young Akira Hokuto here. Yes. Uh, I, I would think this is not long after a comeback from the broken neck, right? Yeah. So there's your old Japan women. Stampede. Lance Eyed on Chris Benoit with the international tag titles from the Cuban Commandos. Champagne Jerry Morrow and the Cuban Assassin Angel Acevedo on uh, October 7th, Calgary. The two will likely be short-lived because they're hinting at a breakup between the two. Lance Idol almost surely be the heels has been once one of the best babyface working style wrestlers in North America. And Idol's headed to Japan early November for the tag tournament. Actually, the two made one of the better teams around, probably around top 15 in the world. Uh, 
results of the show. Great Gama and Occam Singh over Steve Blackman and Randy Thatcher. Leo Burke over Goldie Rogers. Bruce Hart over Gilles Defosse. Jason Terrible went to no contest with Vulcan Singh, Gary Albright. And then the Benoit Idol Cuban Commandos match. Now, these matches range from three to four stars. However, the best match Dave seen on recent tapes was uh, the Johnny Smith Biff Wellington double countout, which aired about three weeks back on TSN, which is four stars plus. Wellington's in Japan right now for Inoki and has looked very impressive. Russell Simmerstall, the Bret Hart, is very close to Bret in ability. In fact, virtually the same, but lacks Bret's charisma. That's a pretty high price for Biff Wellington there, Big Fun Dave. I mean, he was a very solid worker. I, I feel like he worked more like Benoit than Bret, but. That's what I'm saying, yeah. But I think he's he was more dynamite influenced. Yeah, but he could have done more. I've never really heard why he just kind of fizzles out the way he does. I don't know. And it's a, you know it's a, a lot of good talent here and good stuff in '88 late '88 Stampede. Yes, and Idol and Benoit were a pretty good team, although they do seem kind of mismatched. Yeah, and of course Idol ends up turning on him. Well, yes. Steve DeSalvo, who's been the group's top babyface, left for a tour of Yugoslavia. The top heel North American champion, Mucken Singh, is still wrestling in Europe with no scheduled return date. If he's not back for a while, they may have to do a tournament for the singles title. Oh, so that's why Bob Brown took over on commentary, because Mike Shaw was in Europe. There you go. I wonder how that Yugoslavian tour went for Steve DeSalvo. But on the results from that... Kind of makes you, I mean, it, it does make you wonder. I mean, I know these things happen. How much was that going on? Where, do you, where guys would go on these unknown tours of foreign countries that we have no, no record of? You know? Yeah. It does make you wonder how, how much that went on. Because, I mean, there'll be guys that you don't see any results for for a little while. Like, where'd they go? Well, Were we know injured? in the WWF in 84, 85, it generally means that they're on a Middle Eastern tour. Yeah, we don't have hardly nothing on those. Nope. All right, let's go to Mexico. EMLL on uh, October the 8th at Pista Arena Revolution in Mexico City. We have Dinamo against Comodin. Dick Angelo Jr. and El Faison against Ray David and Roberto Paz. Baby Casas, that's Felino, lost at Silhueta and Sombra from Blana, went against Baby Richard, Cesar Sando, and Simbolo. Américo Roca, Gran Cochis, and Javier Yanes went up against Bestia Savaje, Commando Russo, and Guerrero Negro. And Nelandi, Marnaca, Javier Cruz, and Rayo de Lisco Jr. went up against Io de Gladiador, Hakamate, and Peroff. None of the major arenas we have anything for, so that's mm. why I included that, that show there. And we have a show in Tijuana on October the 7th. Where with the opener, we don't have anybody listed, but we have Destello, El Tapatillo, and Thunderbird. Against Bronco Ortiz, Domino Negro, and Electron. Lobo Rubio, Mastic, and Negro Casas against El Vengador, Empato, and Super Kiss. Dos Caras and Conan El Barbaro against Fishman and Supremo. And then Pequeño Robin and Tornado Negro in a uh, Caballero Contra Mascara match. Hmm. So there's your uh, stuff from Mexico during our week. And we got some Puerto Rico. Carolina on October the 8th. Caribbean tag titles. Oregon Castillo Jr. in. Miguel Perez Jr. defending against Don Kent and El Profe. Grizzly Boone went against Rufus R. Freight Train Jones. What a match that was. Ricky Santana uh, defended the Puerto Rico title against Bobby Jaggers. The Batten Twins went against Dr. Death and Mr. Pogo, not Steve Williams. 
T-Star went up against TNT, and our main event was Urquidez Ayala against Carlos Colon. Any idea who Dr. Death is? Uh, no. Okay. I always love seeing, like, really late when he's ancient Don Kent results. He's booking, if I'm oh. mistaken here, too. Okay. Yeah. So is he the first booker after... Yeah. Jose? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that they made a point of bringing in an American for that, too. Yeah, but it's also somebody who is, you know, past their prime, and uh, somebody that had a history there. Had he booked there before? Um, I don't know. He may have in the early, early 80s. I don't know, but he, he worked there off and on for a while. How old do you think Don Kent is here? Uh, Probably early 50s. 55. 55? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. And he wasn't booking himself on top, so... Yeah. Now we're going to have one of those rare deals with the 80s territory, seven, where we have no clips. Memphis would have been in here, but, but it was, of course, at the beginning of the show, so we had clips there. But, yeah, no, no real TV or any, anything interesting of note on TV that we would play in this in this show was uh, was going on, so... This will be a sh- shorter territory section than normal for this time period. But anyway, let's go to Matt Watts. Brother Joe Petticino is averaging three to four ratings after six weeks on WVEU Channel 69 Atlanta with his Superstars Marathon. Yeah, that, that was a, a you know a solid rating for them because of um, you know they just switched over from Channel 36. Yeah, I got to think that's so, a pretty good rating on a UHF station of that caliber. Yeah, well, six. I mean, well, thirty six wasn't wasn't that much bigger than sixty nine at that time. So, I mean, hmm. still, but still, it's, it's really good ratings considering they just changed. All right, Florida Championship Wrestling. They uh, had a show in Tampa at the Sportatorium on October the fifth. Mark Starr over Scotty the Body, Dustin Rhodes over Bad Bob Cook, the Nasty Boys over uh, went to a draw with Blade and Rock. Ring Lords. Dick Slater retained the Florida heavyweight title, being Brett Sawyer, Bubblegum Kid, and Johnny Ace and the Termini- Terminator, the Laurinaitis Brothers, retained the Florida tag titles, being Steve Kern and Mike Graham. So just like a standard Florida Church of Wrestling show, nothing special. Yeah. But now yeah. we get now we go to something special, though, Bix. Oh boy, does that mean we are going to? I thought I had the sound word up. Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. Yes, it's time to go to Continental, and we start with the torch. Now that Eddie Gilbert's left, Bullet Bob Armstrong has taken over the booking, and the promotion will be very regional, as the major expansion plans left with Gilbert and Paulie dangerously. Well, good. <laughs> it was a bad idea. Yeah, exactly. Oh, let's go out to New Orleans. <laughs> Yeah, they wanted to build the super territory. You know, the, they wanted to do the continental with Watts, the Watts territory, combine them up. All, and yeah, and all of a sudden they're running split crews in a oh, territory that normally had, what, max 12 wrestlers? Yes. On the October 8th television, Dirty White Boy and Jerry Stubbs took the bullet on TV, and Brad made the save while Pritchard went to a 10 minute draw with Grapple for two. Ken Wayne did an interview bragging about he won the new car beating Danny Davis in Birmingham. This was taped prior to the Road to Birmingham show, and originally Wayne was supposed to win the match, but they got the finish change, so Davis would win the match, but get his head shaved afterwards, but it screwed up the interviews done beforehand. 
CWF everybody. <laughs> Grappler 2 said that when you see one grappler, you see the other one. So some are speculating that Lynn Denton might be headed in. Who's Grappler 2 here? Rick Hazard. That's right. Okay. Yep. Masir Chono is here under the ring name of Mr. Chono as a heel. Shocking. Yeah. But he's Japanese. So he's Mr. Yes, of course he is. And we go to Matt Watch. Early post Eddie Gilbert, but CW is down. Um, Gumridge, $3,400 for the t- October 9th TV taping, and Dothan was weighed down the night before. Well, were the, what was the Montgomery Gates before that? He didn't say. Also, everyone that was there at the time says that Eddie did not get the g- business up. So, <laughs> I, mean, I guess it could have gone down temporarily after, but still, this is a... As far as dirt sheet narratives that were not true, this is one of the old-timers, right? Mm-hmm. That Eddie actually popped the business in that territory. Yeah, well, we're seeing it right here, you know. Uh-huh. All right, let's go to World Class Although, in fairness, right? I did realize, though, he's probably talking to David Woods throughout all this. Steve is, at least. So it's possible yeah. this it's possible this gate being lower is true. Uh-huh. Anyway, let's go to World Class Championship Wrestling now, and back to Matt Watch. If Jared Jarrett's purchase of Kim Mantel's third of World Class goes through, and it may have by the time you read this, Jarrett will run World Class and keep CWA as a separate entity. Plus, don't be surprised if Continental eventually works with Jarrett on some big shows in Birmingham. David Woods has a good relationship with Jarrett, which Gilbert reportedly did not. Doesn't happen. I mean, you get a little bit of Lawler coming in, but and Jeff Jarrett, but yeah, you didn't get that working together with Memphis and Continental like you could have. Mm-hmm. Or world class. Yeah. I mean, they're technically considered part of the super class consortium, but not really. Yeah. Um, now, okay, I'm curious, since what we're saying at the time is he's buying Ken Mantell's third. I mean, Ken Mantell hasn't been around in a while, has he? Or is he still... He was not around, but he still had his points. Okay. Because when was his at least, you know, Grain of Salt, Gary Hart's book, I think, claims that Ken Mantell and Alex Simpson disappeared after he cut up Missing Link. When when would that have been approximately in 88? Late spring, early summer, I guess. At least looking at cage match, there were no results for him there after July. So that seems right. Yeah. Um, what ends up happening is they just start a new company. Yes. Where Jerry owns 60% and he puts a certain amount of capital in to, as so do Kevin and Carrie, the less to take care of the debts. Yes. All right. So tour on October the 9th drew 600 fans. Ken Nagasaki and Keiji Mudo attacked Kevin as he was doing the interview. And the whole story was supposed to be told to the fans on TV there this past weekend. Maybe it's good to be in the mesh tag with Kevin and Carrie and Kendall Wyndham against the Boss Wannabees, Iceman King Parsons, and Jimmy Jack Funk. Dave should mention that earlier in the show, Wyndham had the prompt to light heavyweight title challenge against Eric Embry, which ended with Atbar's crew attack Wyndham, so it was no contest, but Embry was glaring at Atbar and yelled at him because he didn't want people interfering in his match. Anyway, since Kevin couldn't wrestle, the ref ruled one member of the heel team had to leave, so Jimmy Jack Funk left. However, he made Carrie juice with a cowbell immediately. Then Wyndham was pinned. Carrie has been destroyed two-on-one and bleeding against Iceman and Beast when Embry came to ringside. 
got to in the corner and made Kerry tag him. They weren't the regular match, and Kerry and Embry wound up winning, so Eric Embry turned babyface. Um, so that, that on that Sportatorium show, we have Steve do it to a concert with Fatu, Wembley, Wembley, Eric Embry over Kent Castle, Steve Cox over uh, doing a uh, do it to a cost over Tuck Taylor, Black Bar of Vespalo, Million Dollar Baby over Macho Midget. Yes. And the Von Eris and Kendall over Beast, Funk, and Parsons. And some of the results are missing, obviously. But uh, yeah, so there's the Eric Embry, uh, beginning of the Eric Embry Babyface turn. Yep. And it was a good angle. And of course, you know, he makes what he can out of all this. Is he already booking? Until Jared, Jared takes over. Yeah. So who's booking at this point? Hmm. I guess, yeah. Because it's seemingly not Ken Mantell. It's not Eric Embry. Michael Hayes is long gone. Or no, is he? No, Michael Hayes is still here. Or is he? Yeah, he is. So it's Michael Hayes. Yeah, he's here. Yeah, so it's Michael Hayes booking, right? No, or is he done he, by then? Done booking by then? I think he's done. Okay. Yeah, why isn't he on the show? At least in the results we have. That's what threw me off. I mean, he might be. As so if we don't have all the results. Mm. Okay. All right. I, I, let's see here. I'm. I'm. Uh, let's 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 play this. What? The turn. The him. The coming to save him. I'm digging it up right now. Even though, I mean, it airs after our week, but... Yeah, but... Why not? We don't have any clips. You're pulling up the one from the Eric Embry versus Devastation playlist on YouTube, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm getting that timestamp. That's what... Okay, here we go. I found it. All right, so here. All right. Let me send that to you. This is very exciting to listen to, I'm sure. Well, I mean, like, you don't do stuff like this trying to set up stuff well, <laughs> uh here we go all right let's see what we got here oh i already had the screen share on good i forgot to turn it off early i carry off in illegal fashion look out down the aisle cubs player boy and eric embry eric embry has already been down in a match has showed up he's heading for the side of the ring that carries on but he wait He's not interfering. He's carry taken to the foot. He's in the wrong corner, actually. Embry is. He is. Because he's, uh... Eric Embry does. Oh, now he's in the right corner. I think he wants to help carry. Let's not be fooled here. Eric is tag carry. Carry is stud. Eric Embry moves head on ice bad abdomen. Look at that crowd. Shocking event here has tagged that legal with Kerry Von Eric. Again, let's stand by. Let's not be fooled. But as it stands now, Eric is all over the ice pad and Kerry sent the beast out of the ring. Ice pad is grabbed by both Kerry and Eric. Double drop kick and down. Ice pad heads for the floor. Beast away, and Carolina Eric is going to be a winner here. 
looking at each other as if though they're not sure exactly what happened. And at this point, I'm not sure I do either. Eric turns and lays, but this crowd is very, very pleased with what took place. calling off his horses from Devastation Incorporated. They get counted out, and Kerry is the winner. And that does it for this exciting elimination main event. And for... There you go. So, uh... There's the first in the Eric Embry babyface turn. And little did they know what that was going to do to the territory. Yes. And also, I know we're kind of a broken record on this, but look at the kind of drop kicks Kerry can throw on a prosthetic foot. He felt it, though. You saw how he was laying oh, there on the map? Uh, yeah, I was about to say that, too. He took a long time to get up. It seems like he messed up the prosthesis or something. Yeah. So. All right, let's go to the AWA and to the Perosa Torch. AWA office is really back to full time. Alderusha has left the AWA in favor of a possible movie producer career in Hollywood. Dale Gagner has replaced him, and he and Rob Rustin are in charge of putting together spot shows, quote-unquote. Oh, I'm sure that'll end well. <laughs> for Al DeRusha producing films, Bix. Is he going to work with Justy on producing major motion pictures? <laughs> I guess so. How, do, do we want to see if he has an IMDb? And now I'm curious. Al DeRusha? Uh, uh, I doubt it. Uh, no, doesn't seem like yeah. it. And we go to Matt Watch. Broadway Danny Wolf told Matt Watch that Super Flash 3 has cleared a million homes, including. Memphis and San Diego, they're now working hard on clearing more southern markets. I always found it weird that AWA is the lead. I mean, granted, they're the biggest name promotion when the pay-per-view is being handled by FNN Score, which is not Air AWA. Weird, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, well, we'll have, more, we'll have more on Score in a minute. Yes, and just doubling back for a second, the full-time thing is because Russin and Gagner really fill up that spot show schedule I mean, to their credit, and suddenly they have regular work for everyone. Yeah, you can get a lot more AWA results in that era. Absolutely. All right, Portland. We have a few shows, three shows to talk about. October 6th is Salem. Avalanche are Village Two Eagles. Mike Golden about Puerto Madrid. Southern Rockers 10 Northwest Tattoos over Avalanche and Buddy Rose by DQ. Avalanche, of course, Yo Baby, Yo Baby, Yo, PN News. And Tom Gunn over The Grappler. Top Gun for Dave Sierra. Eugene, the next night, October 7th. Madrill over Steve Dahl. Mike Golden over Avalanche. Buddy, Dahl, Buddy Rhodes over Scott Peterson. And Top Gun retained the Northwest Heavyweight title beating the Grappler by DQ. Buddy Dahl. And then, I know. And then in Portland, the next night, we have uh, Southern Rockers over Rose and Avalanche. Golden over Grappler by DQ. Madrill going to draw with Billy Two Eagles. Top Gun going to draw with C.O.A. Bergstrom. And in a mass versus mass match, Top Gun beat Top Gun. Buddy Rose was under a mask as uh, the uh, the fake Top Gun. What was the storyline going into this? I have no idea because we we really don't have this this era in particular on tape that we that I know of. I haven't seen it. Okay. So I don't know what the dueling Top Gun deal is, but it sounds funny to me. Yeah. It's P Piper's booking, so him and Lynn Denton are booking in this time period. So oh, he knows? is already by this point? Okay. I think so, yes. And we close with FNN Score and Matt Watch. FNN Score refers to a weekend service in January, which could force one of the two regular shows off. Broadway Danny Wolf hopes to launch a wrestling call-in show in January. 
He'll do a phone-in special during November with possibly Jerry Lawler or Ronnie Garvin. Okay. So, by the two regular shows, he means Memphis and Continental. Yeah. Um, that's weird, though, because you're FNN, and at that point, did FNN really have any, like, nighttime programming? So why is it only a weekend service now? I don't know. That's weird. But at least that explains why things start to die off as far as the wrestling on there. Yeah, I have no idea why uh, why that was like that. So I never had FNN score, so I wouldn't know. Oh, you didn't. Well, and it wouldn't have mattered because you had Continental in Memphis anyway. Yeah. So, did you ever uh, did you ever get Tempo? Nope. Oh, so you never saw all Japan women or any of the stuff on there. Mm-mm. All right, John's back with us now, and we're going to close out with the National Wrestling Alliance. And in this sentence, it says it all. Chaos reigns in the NWA right now. The biggest stories of the Road Warriors turn heel on October 7th in Richmond. They're trying to tease this event for two reasons. One, it is their belief that by teasing the event before it actually aired, it would build up the impact of the event when it airs and also increase TV ratings, which desperately need to increase. And two, the Road Warriors have matches at Babyface scheduled through the end of the month. So like Titan would do, they don't want to air the turn until the matches with them as phases have been completed. Anyway, the actual incident was a six-man tag with the Road Warriors and Sting taking on Rick Steiner, Mike Rotund, and Kevin Sullivan. The Warriors worked virtually the entire match and were on the defensive a lot, but it finally went to a six-way and Sting cleaned house pretty much by himself, then put Rotund in Scorpion, but the Warriors then attacked Sting and destroyed him with a clothes on the top rope while Sting was sitting on animal shoulders. Doomsday device. Luger was first guy in. He kind of acted neutral and hovering over Sting, but he was attacked and beat up as well. Sting wanted to do a stretcher job. The event didn't get over as good as one would think at the arena, but that may have been because the crowd was small and because the story leading up to the turn was almost non-existent. But the Warriors versus Luger and Steen doesn't draw. The official end of the Warriors era may be just around the corner because there isn't much left that can be done with them. 88 was an interesting year for the Road Warriors because Starcade 87, they, I mean, that sh- they should have won the titles. That was a big mistake. They were, I mean, the, the crowd wanted it. It was in Chicago. They should have won the belts. And then they go in 1988, and they're, you know, they feud with the powers of pain. They do that heat angle with the, the bodybuilding contest. I mean, the bench press contest where Animal gets hurt, which ends up being a shoot. And, you know, they do the, the Tower of Doom matches, you know, and uh, the powers of pain leave. I have a Koloff and Russian assassin take over. And they're back and forth from Japan at this point in time. So 88 was a weird year for the Road Warriors. And then they turn heel. And, John, you know, it was a time where they needed to to be refreshed, but the crowd did not want to boo them. I mean, I could have told you in 19 – I would have told you in 1988. I did tell people it was a horrible idea. All you're going to do by having the Road Warriors feuding with Sting and Luger is turn the crowd against Sting and Luger, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, but you know, so, Dave makes a really good point. Like, we you know, at this point, what do you do with the Road Warriors? I think the answer was in in 1989. You know, create a big tag team to feud them with, and they they cre- you know they created the um, uh, Spivey and Sid. What were they called? Skyscrapers. 
Thank you. I don't know why I couldn't, couldn't remember that. That was the answer, even though that few didn't exactly take off. But that was the best thing they could have done. They they absolutely should not have turned the Road Warriors. I'm big on that. There are some guys you just don't turn, and the Road Warriors you know, were the tag team not to turn. And then they doubled down with Dust. You know, Dusty doubled down with the spike in the eye angle to try to get heavy heat on them, and then that didn't work and got Dusty in deep shit. And You know, I mean, it's... It was a smart move that when Turner took over, they decided, okay, we need to get these guys back as baby faces and let's put them with a varsity club and we'll just, you know, ease that in, you know, get them baby face again because it, the heel thing just didn't work. It, it, it no, just it didn't work. And when Dusty pulled that angle, and I'm sure you guys know this, I mean, Dusty went from very likely retaining his job as Booker because they didn't know who else to give the job to, to out the door. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Little did he know what that was going to do to him, uh, you know, professionally. You know, I mean, he world. should have. They, they gave a strict edict, no uh, intense violence and no blood on television. What do they do? They he books an angle where he himself gets a spike in the eye. It was it was an act of defiance. Exactly. And the, that's the thing that Dave talks about the story. It, if you watch the TV from right here at this time period, the Road Warriors, they cut promos about how. They're tired of carrying other people, and they're 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 ready to do things on their own. So there's allusion to that, but it's not implied that it was Sting. But the story in the match is that Sting was coming there to get all their glory, and that's why they turned on him because they they didn't want him in there anyway. It was just them. He was there, and. You know, he tried to come in and steal their glory from him. That's why they turned on him. He was trying to take money from them yeah. by being the winner of the match. Which I So mean, basically, yeah. it's something that made no sense. Exactly. Exactly. It was, you know, you had to try to think, oh, I could, well, what is this? What does this mean? But, Vix, uh, what are your thoughts on how this uh, was, was going down here? It just happens out of the blue. And, like, yeah. they kind of give a Sting was hogging the spotlight excuse after, but that doesn't really fit. And it's it's just bad. And then, it you know, it gets looked back at historically as one of those Sting was an idiot turns, even though there's no way he could have seen it coming. No. <laughs> they just attacked him. Well, I, because Sting... he, he, he tried to help him. Sting was an idiot for considering them to be his brothers in paint. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was the thing they were pushing at that time, the brothers in paint deal. Yeah. And just, I don't know if you guys know this. I mean, they had the Road Warriors turn on the table. I want to say for like six months, it had been at least discussed. And we all kind of knew it was coming when it happened. And yet they, you know, it was like a turn that that felt like it had no planning, even though it had been thought about at least since the beginning of summer. Yeah. yeah. Just, it just quit, pull the trigger on it. Yeah. I and then they did, like and then it just bat bombed. I think one of the reasons that people chalk it up as one of those sting was an idiot turns is that I think people misremember it as coming after the attack on Dusty. There's that too. Yeah, but this was it was, this was first. Yes. And see, and see the reason. Here's the thing: the the story, the reason why Sting was there, and they're and they're teaming with them was because Dusty Rhodes 
had a prior engagement with uh, with special needs kids. Yeah. And they, and they said, Dusty Rhodes has given up money to go be with these kids. And, you know, they had other words they were kind of – they didn't use the word retarded, but they were using, you know, some words about, you know, you know being with kids. He valued them over money. How dare he? <laughs> you know? So that was the story of of the whole thing. Why Sting was even involved? So, yeah, it just it just it just fell flat. And yeah, they, they, one thing you say is Jim Hearn and then when they came in, one of the the bright ideas they did have was, hey, let's get these guys back where they need to be. <laughs> so they did all what? sorts of things. Go ahead, go ahead, John, real quick. Go ahead. Uh, Jim Hurd had one really good idea, and he, they, they didn't implement it because it was different. But he wanted to shut the pro- promotion down for like six or eight weeks and show old footage on TV for six or eight weeks while he gets you know everything in line. And I actually thought that would have been a good idea. And every week there would have been a countdown to like you know the new NWA is starts up you know December fifteenth or January first, whenever it would be. But I mean, it was almost like, you know, restaurant is closed for innovations. I thought that they should have done that. You know what? That would eliminate the George Scott era because <laughs> that's about how long it lasted. Well, so, also, <laughs> so Bischoff, when he was going to do that with the new WCW, he took that idea from her. Exactly. Exactly. I'm, I'm sure Bischoff would get pissed off if anyone said that to him, though. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't approve of that too much, I don't think. The, the final Nitro of the season. That was actually a good idea as well. Yeah, yeah. All sorts of things going on here. First off, the returning superstar they alluded to t- on TV a few weeks ago was supposedly Ricky Steamboat. But they dropped even hinting at that as of late. The last word Dave has is they want Flair versus Steamboat to headline Starcade. December 26th in Norfolk, and Steamboat has been given an incredible deal or offered. There is a big difference, but thus far hasn't accepted. Negotiations were for one show only, and then they would talk about later doing a few shows in 89 and rematches. Let's go to Steve Beverly now. Three stories are out this week regarding Steamboat. One, Ricky's telling folks he doesn't intend to come to the NWA. Two, NWA insiders are saying that Steamboat is coming. And three, other sources are saying he'll come strictly for one show, and that's it. Matt Watch will continue to follow this story, and he says, you know, the rumor, the headlines arcade on 26, but don't put that down just yet. So they were, talk- they were talking to Steamboat even before, you know, Turner bought the company. So there's that. Yeah, um, Chris, uh, one thing, you know, we were at the convention, and Dave, Dave doesn't put everything he knows in the newsletter, okay? Of uh, course. Everyone at the convention, by the time it was over, knew Steamboat was coming in. We knew Eddie Gilbert was coming in, and we knew Paulie Dangerously was coming in. Like, definitely. Yeah. So the narrative that Steamboat was uh, was only going to come in after Turner bought the company, not all, not true. I mean, no, it was totally not true. It was something that was going to happen well before. Well, it was Crockett, just the timing of when they were going to pull the trigger. Crockett himself was the one that negotiated the deal isn't he yeah crockett was the guy yeah and that's even with dusty being there you know as the booker because the story goes that steamboat wouldn't go in if dusty was the you know when dusty was booking no that's not true no that that's totally false and yeah also at the convention everyone knew that either crockett was going to sell uh to turner or it was going to it was going to, to get closed down well, that's a good segue. 
Matt, watch. Steve, the Turner deal with Jim Crockett is a 65-35 split with Ted holding the upper share, according to TBS officials. Before anyone jumps to conclusions, that's the same percentage Ted owns of TBS, and the Turner people will call all the shots. Then we flip to Dave. My expectation is the company will run as is after the takeover with only some minor decision-making changes, such as the Turner Group suggesting and moving Starcade to December 26 instead of the Buckhouse Stampede, which was Dusty's idea, until the new year. At that point, Dave expects everything to change in a major way. So the deal's not done, but it's pretty much the framework is complete. It was just, you know, getting the finishing touches on it. Exactly. But, yeah, it's a done deal at the time. Absolutely. Uh, it's Steve Beverly, and uh, shockingly, he talks about Eddie Gilbert. The NWA is reportedly reproached Eddie Gilbert about returning, which would be a super move in my view. But independent observers believe Missy Hyatt will have to be kept out of the picture if Eddie returns for him to be successful. Missy had a reputation at that time, John, for uh, being in a problem at times. So uh, <laughs> you were around Eddie and Missy that, that weekend that this all this is going on. So uh, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, Missy really hadn't gotten a reputation yet. When we were doing the Q&A with uh, Eddie and Missy and Paul E., uh, Eddie answered every question eloquently except for one. Missy, why did you leave the WWF? And Eddie was like, nope, we're not talking about that. Like the, the entire mood changed. So I, I think it was huh. more like um, – how do I put this? It was like – Eddie wanted a whole lot of control over what was being done with Missy to the point where it was like, well, just keep Missy off TV. Yeah, pretty much. But that's interesting that he that he did not want to talk about because, I mean, Eddie's always been candid. You know, he's always, you know, you know, talked about just about everything. He's he's not one of those guys to, to you know, curl up on the ball and, and not want to say anything. But that's interesting that he did not want to talk about that WF stat. Yo, I mean, like I said, it was like, you know, his entire mood changed. It was like, boom, we're not talking about that. Wow. Yeah. Huh. That's crazy. And, of course, Steve knows because Steve's talking to Eddie. So, yeah, Steve sure. knows Steve. <laughs> All right. The, the monster heel Gary Hart's alluded to in interviews is Abdul the Butcher, who will probably show up in mid-December after the tag tournament feud with Bam Bam Bigelow. Well, that feud doesn't happen, but uh, Abby does come in for a little bit here into uh, this era, the NWA. And been around three years, so there you go. Greg Valentine's name is constantly mentioned as a new horseman, but Dave's guess is he's using it simply as a negotiating tool for tight. Even if he did agree to come, Dave's belief is it would be a major mistake to put him in a money position. And Steve Barefleet chimes in, it's not beyond comprehension that Gilbert and Valentine would comprise the third and fourth horsemen. Oh, I wonder who planted that suggestion in Steve's head. Could it be <laughs> Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr.? <laughs> Grant Valentine, it was just a year earlier that he was supposed to show up, you know, and then they convinced him to stay because he was going to replace Luger and the Horseman. And now here we are a year later, and his name's popping up again, John. All right, I have a lot to say about this. Um, it, a year ago, a year earlier, like the end of 87, Valentine was considering coming to the NWA and apparently as part of the Horsemen, uh, you know, replacing Luger. And it, it was a horrible idea. And it proves that no one in the NWA was watching WWF TV because they knew the Greg Valentine of 1982, 1983, the 1987 and 1988 Greg 
Valentine was a completely different animal. You can't take a guy who's been in a tag team for three years at that point with either Brutus Beefcake or Gino Bravo in the middle of the card and make them a horseman. The the NWA fans knew that Greg Valentine was was way over the hill and you know down the other side of it. And I mean, again, '88 it was just a it was just a worse idea than '87. And by the, the by the time Tully and Arn left, okay, and a lot of people aren't going to like to hear this, but I, I thoroughly believe it. The concept of the four horsemen had its run and then some. It was time to move on to something else or turn the horseman baby face, which I wouldn't have done. It was just time to get away from that concept. But no, the NWA kept clinging and clinging to the horseman, largely because Dusty and Flair liked it. But it was time to do something else. I mean, and when, when Tully and Arn left, you know, they tried replacing them with guys like Butch Reed and you now Kendall Windham as a junior horseman. If you're doing stuff like that, it's time to move on to something else. I genuinely think that Tully and Arn leaving was a blessing in disguise for the company. As much as I liked them, they were just too stale. It refreshed. It, it was a refresher for, you know, for Flair and Wyndham in a way, you know, yeah. in, 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 in that reason. But yeah, you know, Michael Hayes, turning Michael Hayes healed, the Yamazaki Corporation. Oh, man. The, yeah, that didn't work out so well. Yeah. Flair just basically Flair needed to turn babyface. That was that was the thing that he needed to be refreshed, and that's what eventually happened. So yeah. it happened, but not for long enough, and it didn't happen well, early enough. Yeah, well, well that Rick Flair. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. Booking. Flair didn't <laughs> want to do it. Yeah. Polly dangerously and Dennis Carter and Randy Rose are about 80% certain to be starting up in two or three weeks, which will make Jim Cornette and his team into full-fledged baby faces, and they would do a Midnight Express versus Midnight Express feud. This should work because of the managers. Even though Conjure isn't the type who gets over today, Dave's belief is fans remember him and his stuff we eat and will get over. Rose, on the other hand, is out of his league with a national promotion, but they guess he can be hidden with Dangerously and Contrary. Oh, I wonder where, when, and from who Dave heard about this. Eighty <laughs> percent, huh? I wonder. <laughs> that, 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 did that update come from the days in <laughs> Memphis? But uh, so yeah, here we go. Here we go, John. Um, and, and you know, Dave's right, and all this accord. And I love Randy Rose. I mean, Randy Rose worked Georgia Andes in my childhood. He was all over TV. You know, he's I've watched him wrestle more than a lot of people. But he wasn't a guy who was going to be a big deal in a major promotion. That just wasn't him. And it was fun while it lasted. It didn't last long enough. But uh, we we did get, you know, some good angles out of this feud, the Midnight's versus Midnight's. Uh, well, it was it was a good enough feud, but I, I really thought that it dragged it dragged Lane Eaton and Cornette down a little bit. First, you're feuding with the Horsemen, which is you know an elite position, and now you're feuding with Dennis Condry and Randy Rose. And like I said, I I think it was a it was a fun feud because of Jimmy and, and Paulie, but it was it was just not in the best interest for Lane Eaton Lane uh, Lane. Eaton and Cornette. I thought it, it dragged them down and really they never, I don't want to say they never bounced back from the feud. They never bounced back from the way they were booked after they won the NWA uh, tag team titles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the feud was a natural feud to do, but it just wasn't done the, 
the right way, especially at the end. So yeah, especially when yeah it fell apart uh, at uh, Chi Town Heat when they you know didn't tell Dennis Condry what they were going going to do with him next. And he's like, all right, I'll go home to Colorado. Well, it basically falls apart when Dusty when Dusty's gone. Basically, that's where it begins to fall apart. And uh, true, you know, it wasn't the same after that. Yeah, because Crockett when he was uh, head of the steering committee, Chris. Mm. <laughs> uh, was not a Randy Rose fan, and that kind of threw everything off. Also, having Paul and Jimmy cut and dueling promos on each other, especially in this era, does expose just how much at this time Paul's act is basically a cross between Cornette and Piper on promos. <laughs> you definitely get to who Paul's influences were. <laughs> That's what they can say about Paul. You knew who influenced him. In, in uh, his promo stylings, but he was still great at it, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, here you go, John. Big John Studd, Tommy Rich, and Bob Orton Jr. have all been either called or have opened negotiations about coming in once Turner takes over. It's like, <laughs> who is a list of guys we can get John McAdam to rant about being bad ideas to bring in on a podcast 34 years later? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, John Studd goes to WWF. Tommy Rich, you know, comes in later on, but Bob Orton shows up, you know, in early 89. <laughs> you know, I saw Bob Orton have a good match with Tito Santana in 1994, and I was absolutely stunned because he showed nothing during this 88-89 <laughs> run in the NWA. I mean, when they brought him in, I was at like, well... At least he could work still in like 85, 86, and then he kind of packed it in in 87. So maybe if, you know, he put some effort into it and this is more of a work rate company, no way. He showed absolutely nothing. It was, he was, de he was definitely not what he was, that's for sure. And then John Studd goes WF and gets pushed. <laughs> <laughs> and then he quits in the middle of the push. Yes. Amazing. Well, in fairness, as far as bringing in Orton, though, he did look good on his New Japan tour a few months earlier. Well, yeah, but that's New Japan. <laughs> so, and against no, that, I, that crew. That's a good point, though. And it's, a, and it's that crew at that time. One of the greatest rosters ever assembled in a wrestling promotion was that sure. era of New Japan. So, yeah. yeah. Well, right. I mean, you figure if he put some effort into New Japan, he might put some effort into NWA, which just did, which did not happen. No. Dave says I'm all for change. I'm all for changing the TV shows from self-contained episodes to a soap opera type format. But this bit, where on the AM show they promise showing the tape of the Warrior Angle, then hinting about through two hours on the PM show, show about it, and then say they won't be showing it until next week is not a positive step. That only serves to turn off the audience. Just as leaving the matches in progress in the show does. If TV ratings are going up. I'd stay quiet about these things, figuring those in charge know what they're doing. But ratings have consistently gone down on every Crockett TV show over the last year and a half, ever since the 30-second squash, 90-second interview format started. That, uh, on the syndicated shows especially, oh my God, I hated that 30-second 30, 30 squash, 90-second interview. Oh, it sucked. Yeah, no it's wrestling. It sucked, and you're right, and they didn't even identify uh, half the time who the wrestler was going, oh, it's Tully and Arn going against We Don't Even Know, and you know that's not a way to present a sporting event. Tony and David never, would, would never do it in that era. Ross and Caudle, Caudle definitely would, because he always did it. But yeah, Tony and David, no way. No. no. 
And then they would do this thing, and this this came to the part where it was uh, basically parody in 1988. They would talk about this exciting main event match coming up, you know, I don't know, Barry Windham against Lex Luger, just throwing that out there. And the match would the match wouldn't even start, and the credits would be rolling. Like they, the guys hadn't even made contact yet, and it's like, well, no no wonder people are tuning out. All you're doing is pissing everybody off. And see, they, they did that a lot in, in 86. And then you had these hot crowds and Tony, we're out of time. <laughs> you know, just stuff like that is like, ah, you know, watched it would do that shit too. But I'm like, oh my God, you know, don't do this. I want to see this match. You know, I mean, yeah, that, that, that was not good. That was not good. <laughs> People would argue that, hey, I'd rather see five minutes of two main eventers going at it than another squash match. It's like, okay, but those are not your only two alternatives. You know, people want to, if they've been hyping the match the entire show, show the whole match. I don't think that's unrealistic. And yeah, of course, people are getting turned off by the promotion. Yeah, exactly. All right. So those Richmond tapings we were talking about, where the Warriors made their turn, drew a paltry $14,000 house. Smalls in a long time with that match and the turn. Plus, there's Visco over Italian Stallion. Horrible. Russian assassins over Colos by DQ. Decent. And with Sting injured, and he was supposed to be in the main event. It was Flair and Wyndham beating Luger and Ron Simmons making the sub for Sting with Flair pinning Simmons using the figure four leg lock. $14,000 house in Richmond, Bix. Oof. That's bad. Very bad <laughs> there is a theory out there that if crockett had just stayed in the carolinas and virginia and georgia That's that flair. he would have been fine and look at the gates he wouldn't have been fine yeah flair's the one that always puts that out there among others but he's the one that always preaches that not true <laughs> no they were but, dying in the carolinas dusty had burned those cities to the ground uh, well yeah well, yeah we're about to get into the carolinas right here October 9th in Greensboro, 4,000 fans in a building that holds over 18,000. And a $35,000 house as Sheep Herders beat Chris Champion, Italian Stallion. Rip Morgan over Curtis Thompson. Fantastics over Rick Steiner, Mike, and Kevin Sullivan, the best match of the car. Road Warriors over Al Perez and Larry Zbysko in five minutes. Mike Rotunda over Sting. Sting double, excuse me, Mike Rotunda over Ron Simmons. Sting double count out with Barry Windham in five minutes. Russian Assassins. Over Ivan Nikita Koloff when Jack Victory pinned Nikita using the loaded headbutt. And Luger overflared by DQ in 20 minutes when Wyndham and JJ interfered with John Ayers as referee in a three-star match. You think that's bad? Fayetteville, they take TV. October 11th drew 300 fans. Mm. 300 fans with Road Warriors and Midnight's on top. Night 4 in Greenville drew just a $6,300 gate. However, on Charlotte, October 9th, they drew a $60,000 gate range. So Charlotte was you know, all right, but 300 fans in Fayetteville, $6,300 gate in Greenville. These are stalwart towns of Crockett, old school, you know, great towns. That shows you how much they're burning out. And that theory be a complete bullshit. <laughs> there's another one out there, too. 
you know, the NWA, they had way too much TV at the time, and people don't want to sit through squash match after squash match. That gets old. I mean, they had four hours on WTBS, and then they had the two syndicated shows and whatever else I'm forgetting. At this time period, we're in 88, so you got uh, main event and championship wrestling and world championship wrestling. That's four. And then you got pro and worldwide, so that's six. So, that, I mean, that's that's it at that time is, is six hours, you know. But still, I mean, good God. I mean, good Lord. I mean, they're, they're just not performing. They're not performing. They're not drawing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I have never been to an NWA TV taping. I have been to multiple WWF TV oh, tapings. <laughs> and, you know, they, it sounds good on paper, but, like, in the middle of that five-hour marathon, you're like, what am I doing here? Well, the worst, though, John, was uh, mid, mid-90s WCW syndicated TV tapings, where you're sitting there at one in the morning, and here comes Johnny B. Bad to work against uh, – you know, Barry Houston or something like that at one in the morning. That <laughs> is been sitting horrific. there for five hours. <laughs> and I love Barry Houston. And I mean, <laughs> that was fine, but at one o'clock in the morning, I'm I'm ready to go. <laughs> On yeah. a school night. Listen, oh my during God. the week. I went to a WWF TV taping where they did three hours of wrestling uh, superstars and then a Saturday night's main event. And that went about five and a half hours. And it was it was just brutal. <laughs> so I can imagine and it didn't go to one in the morning. It went to about quarter past midnight or so. But it was yeah. a long night. Yes. Oh, those are the days. All right, Matt Watch. Steve uh, Steve says TBS is now opening an international home video licensing deal, which will include marketing of Clash and pay-per-view specials overseas. How about that, Bix? They're they're trying to market their their stuff to people outside the, of America. I mean, they should. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so well, here uh, it is, the end of 1988, and they haven't gotten rolling on this yet. Well, they're behind. You know, they're they're definitely not what WF was on, when it comes to anything business-related. Absolutely. I mean, we do know <laughs> there was some international stuff, though, before this. Like, they're, you know, the New Zealand version of Starcade 86 that we used to try to get our hands on because it was almost the whole show. It was very, very rare yeah. that you had anything like that going on, for sure. Well, you know, the frustrating part is they have the WWF. They have the WWF blueprint right in front of them. Why not ask, okay, if the WWF is doing this, why are we not? Exactly. Follow the leader. Right. Yeah, and, 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 you know, don't make yourself look. You're exactly copying them, but follow the leader. Absolutely. And they've all pretty much only been doing major shows on home video. They haven't really been trying much of anything else other than the stupid Danger Zone tape. <laughs> yeah, where Nikita Koloff says that the Russian hitting the Russian sickle is like coming. <laughs> well, Nikita, hey, Nikita was uh, talk, also talked about how he used his tongue on Ric Flair's women too. So there's that too. Like All right, um, uh, it's like coming. <laughs> All right, so we got promos, two promos to close out for uh, the show. We got Ric Flair. Oh, speaking man, of man, big. Bam Bam Bigelow is around, so you know what that means. Rick oh, Flair, no. Rick Flair is going to tee off on him. So let's go to Rick Flair. I think of one word his... that he, I know he's going to use in this promo. <laughs> doing, doing his thing, yes. All right, ladies and gentlemen, 
the greatest of the great, the world heavyweight champion, Ric Flair. No one else has been able to get to the level that he has. Look at him right now. Respect to kill from head great to toe. Center. The world heavyweight champion, Bill Owens, at his side. Throw the camera over to the Nature Boys public. Look at him. <laughs> Can you imagine? Texas <laughs> are going to be the laughing stock of college football. Bottom line. This might be the most mullety Flair's hair has ever been. <laughs> it's wonderful. Murdoch had, Mur- Murdoch had come out earlier in the show talking about uh, them playing Texas that of day course. and how they were going they were going to beat Texas in the Red River shootout. Blah 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 blah. Um, Tex, uh, Oklahoma beat Texas by two touchdowns. <laughs> Earlier that day, so so these promos were. This show was taped on Wednesday, so it was taped before Saturday. So you got this this pro these promos airing after the game has already taken place. Okay, WCW everybody. <laughs> did Dickie though talk about his great football background at West Texas State University? Oh, no, no. He was pimping the Longhorns, Bix. He wasn't pimping West Texas State. All well, right, I was asking if you talk about his own background. I know you're talking about a different team. Anyway. Yeah. And here I stand. David, let's give him the full shot. Right? His fake background. This is what being the world's heavyweight really is one of wrestling champion is all about. Luger, it's October. It's mid-October to be factual, and women around no, the not. world have said to me, "Nature." No, it's not mid-October. The show airs on the eighth and was taped on the fifth. <laughs> well, it's Ric Flair picks on a, on a Wednesday night with his sunglasses. <laughs> with sunglasses on in studio. Yes. Uh, I wonder if he's wearing them for the same reason Robert Fuller was. <laughs> The weather has gotten colder because Luger now is out of that jockey t-shirt and into a shirt. He is finally going to look things and put things in the right perspective. In other words, Luger, you change the wardrobe, you change your turn of thought. Maybe you think to yourself, maybe Ric Flair can't be beat. Maybe he's everything he thinks he is. Maybe I better ask Sting. Maybe I better ask Dusty Rhodes. Maybe I better ask the Road Warriors. How do you beat Slick Rick? You don't. I, my friend, am your world's heavyweight champion. I style, I profile, I live the life of a man who is the king of the hill. Now, the monster, that's what I call him, the new monster arrives on the scene. Bam, bam, Bigelow. Well, Bigelow, you know, I have traveled the world over, and I have met a thousand women, some big, some short, some skinny, but the bottom line is, you, my friend, are like a lot of women I see day in and day out. You are fetzel. <laughs> you know what I got to you? 
Bigelow, nobody likes to be called Fat Boy. Well, Fat Boy, you tell the world that you're bending a big time? No way. This is the big time. This is the NWA. This is Jim Crockett, Ted Turner, and Ric Flair. So, Bigelow, wherever you think you've been, whatever you think you've accomplished, think of it like this. Luger is like this. Sting is like this. The road warriors are like this. And you are fat boy. You don't like that, do you? Well, let me tell you something, fat boy. You don't like it? Do something about it. Don't talk about where you've been and what you've done. Walk that aisle and shut this mouth. Once again, Ric Flair, tell the like it is. Dusty Rhodes, Murdoch, Sting, Luger. Bam, bam, Bigelow. The Colossus. <laughs> Learn to live with it. Because <laughs> everybody knows who it is the best thing going today. All right, the world heavyweight champion, Ric Flair. Listen, he's talking about the beast from the east, Bam Bam Bigelow. So Oliver Humperdinck is coming up next. We'll find out more about Bam Bam right after this. get the feeling he genuinely does not like Bam Bam Bigelow. Well, that's what I was going to talk to John about first. I mean, there's two people in this era that Ric Flair, when he cut promos on them, took a different tone when he talked about them. Eddie Gilbert and Bam Bam Bigelow. Two guys he did not like, and I think the the reason why he did not like them was with Gilbert, Gilbert was putting over the UWF as being superior to Crockett, which he hated that. And then Bigelow talking about being in the big time. And now he's coming to work here, trying to make Crockett promotions not seem like the big time. I mean, Flair was very protective of Crockett promotions, extremely protective. And to have guys come out there and make the group that he wrestles in seem inferior, quote unquote, that pissed him off. It did, and I know he resented the push Bam Bam Bigelow was going to get from the beginning. Um, you know, he saw Bigelow as an outsider, uh, someone who hadn't done anything for Crockett, and now they're talking about him uh, main eventing a Starcade. And I, I agree that Bam Bam Bigelow should not have come in getting on TV saying, hey, I've been to the big time. You're supposed to be like, hey, I've arrived at the big time. But that's that's at the same time, he was a very valuable, piece uh, that landed in Crockett's lap that A, they did not use correctly, but B, Bigelow himself had said that you know he was very immature at the time. But my big question is, how does Dick Murdoch think Texas is going to beat Oklahoma when they got <laughs> blown out by BYU earlier in the year? <laughs> it's that Texas pride, John. I mean... <laughs> I see. That puts and- points on the board. <laughs> And that Texas team that you were four and seven. Yeah, you know, the, that the was David not a good McWilliams era. 
David McWilliams era. That's right. Well, they were three and one going into the Oklahoma game. Then they lose that one in three. Then they lose uh, five of the next six. <laughs> <laughs> and this is when they were, were in the, the, the Southwest Conference. The Southwest Conference sucked. Um, I mean, yeah, they were they were in the Southwest Conference that year. I think A and M won the comp. No, Arkansas won the conference that year. So uh, with Ken Hatfield as a head coach, but uh, but yeah, I mean, Bix. I mean, we've we've done these promos before. Ric Flair, boy, he did not like Bam Bam Bigelow, and he let everybody know that. Good lord. No, and you know, Bigelow had his rep still for being immature in this era. Um. You would think well, he would... Andre the Giant hated him. Well, I was gonna. Well, Andre the Giant hated all the other big guys, but well, he hated him especially. Yeah, you would think though he would learn from Andre the Giant stepping on him, but <laughs> yes, basically calling his own shot in that match at the Garden, pretty much. So I'm yeah. done with this guy. <laughs> all right, so that's Ric Flair. Next, well, uh, I just realized something though. There's a story, uh, the, the other famous Bigelow immature story. It's probably one we should tell this week because it's more timely because uh, of one of the people involved. The story of when he first went to All Japan, how he had been working New Japan for years and he knew not to trust Inoki entirely with his money. So he always counted it when he got the envelope. Yeah. He did it in front of Baba, not knowing that counting it in front of Baba would be an insult because it's Baba. <laughs> Yeah, big mistake. <laughs> big mistake on his part doing that. All right, well, we close with Jim Cornette. We talked about Jimmy earlier in the show, and uh, Jimmy's on fire here. So let's go to uh, Jim Cornette talking about the full horsemen, the demise of them, and a few other things. And the Midnights at this point have already vacated the U.S. tag titles, right? That's correct. Hey! Do you want to see what's in the bag? October the 15th, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We're going to be inside the steel cage. And I guarantee you something, I ain't been wrestling in a while. But if I don't beat Jim Cornette, then I'm going to eat that tennis racket. That's what J.J. Dillon said. Well, J.J., never let it be said, brother, that Jim Cornette could be accused of cruelty to senior citizens. You old goat. I tell you what, since you're going to have a heck of a meal there in Philadelphia eating that tennis racket, I got plenty of stuff for you. I got you some Heinz. I got you some salt. I got you some mayonnaise. That should go real good. I got you some A1. Nice little sauce there. I got you some mustard. You can have your choice. Anything you want, JJ, to put on that tennis racket. And then after we get finished, when you get it all wolfed down, I know those $12 mail order catalog dentures you got are going to be flopping around in your mouth. So I got you some fixing it right there so you can gum your teeth up and you can gum your lips up at the same time so you won't be running your mouth making any more promises at that big buddy yours can't keep. Now let me talk about the Road Warriors. I heard them out here. Yeah, he kind of shaped like that, didn't he? I heard the Road Warriors out here talking about being out in Hawaii, eating platefuls of poo-poo. Well, I tell you what, I think what the Road Warriors have been eating, I believe, has gone up between their ears and they're using it for brains. 
Road Warriors, let me tell you something right now. You talk about being the uncrowned tag team champions, there's no such thing as uncrowned champions. These right here are the crowns. That means we're the champion. You don't have a crown, you ain't no champion. And brother, you may be the biggest, baddest, strongest, meanest two guys in professional wrestling, but to get to be the world tag team champions, you gotta have a lot more than that. You gotta have perfect teamwork. You gotta have stamina to go all night, brother, and then some, and most of all, in the twinkling of an eye, in a split second, the Midnight Express can capitalize on a mistake. A match can be won or lost. Road Wars, we get in the ring with you. We're so much smarter than you are. We will have you beat and be out of the ring 10 minutes before you know the match is over with. If you don't believe us, then you just ask the guys we won these world belts from. You know them. <laughs> the ones that decided they'd rather switch than fight. <laughs> United States heavyweight champion Barry Windham's coming up next. I love that line that he used at the end there. Loved it. And this this incarnation of Cornette, where he's still a heel, but he's also a baby face. He's tween a tweener here. This is the best version of that in that run to me. Is this version right here? He's fantastic. Uh, he, he was fantastic. He was on fire here. The Midnight Express were on fire, and as you know, and we're just a few weeks away from them pouring crushed ice on that fire. I'm, I'm still a little bit bitter about this. Thirty three years later, and uh, you know, he's talking about JJ Dillon being a senior citizen. He's forty at one time. J- he's forty six years old. <laughs> you know what it is? It's less his age, and I think more that he had gotten the eye lift. Yeah, and, and JJ had the you know that the, the way he was you know had his hair and stuff like that. He just looked older than what he was. But um, great stuff from Jimmy there, and Jimmy using Heinz ketchup. He knows he knows who the the, the king of ketchup is there. Yes. So. Although I, I did want to mention though, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier with the Midnight's versus Midnight's feud, with hindsight. They probably should have just kept both belts on them until they lost the world belts to the Road Warriors, so that way they'd have the U.S. tag titles for the Midnight's feud. Well, picks. Let's not come up with things that make sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, good lord! Look what company we're talking about. And you're doing. No, I mean, you know what? I, I actually disagree so. with that. I think as soon as you win the the world tag team titles belt, you have to hand the the, for lack of a better word, lesser titles over. I mean, if 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 you're going to hold the world titles for a while, yeah, and I get and I agree with you in theory, but look what they did to the U.S. Tag titles. So I nice. mean, it it was a total debacle. So that would it would have been better for them to to do what what Bigs is saying in the in the end. But yeah, in theory, you're absolutely correct. No, I, I see where Bix is coming from. Yeah. Oof. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. John, always a blast having you on. So go ahead and plug away, man. Talk about your podcast, whatever else you got going on. Uh, always a pleasure to be here. It's been too long. And yeah, if you enjoyed hearing me on this fine podcast, you will enjoy hearing me on Stick to Wrestling. Uh, just put the word Stick to Wrestling in your favorite search engine and it'll come right up. It's usually me and one other guest. And we talk about uh, a far ranging uh, world of wrestling topics from the 70s, 80s, 90s, usually the 80s. Well, the best time. Of course. <laughs> It is the best time. How come? I mean, come on. That is the golden age of wrestling for people of our 
generation. Absolutely. So, Very uh, true. I would say late 70s, early 80s is absolutely my favorite era of wrestling. And obviously that's what gets covered a lot. But we, we wander out of that sometimes. Oh, yeah. But anyway, we always love having you on, John. So appreciate you joining us. No, it was great hanging with you guys. Thank you. Yes. Next week on Between the Sheets, we have we go back to 1993, an interesting time in wrestling history, where in WCW, we'll be talking about a few things. Nothing major going on there. We have some Crystal Chandelier shows from Kennesaw, talk about which Bix always loves. Uh, we got uh, the regular indie stuff, including uh, the debut of Championship Wrestling from Indiana, Jeff Cohen's promotion. We got the uh, the Moon Dogs in Memphis. We'll talk about that. We got WF in Memphis and USWA go, still going to war at this time period. So we'll have that. And Brian Christopher starts his babyface turn. We got Daryl Van Horn meeting Bob Cottle for the first time at Smoky Mountain Wrestling. So you know how that's going to go. And we got more of the Ron Wright, Tammy Fitch, uh, Brian Lee story going on. Then we got uh, all kinds of other stuff. We got ECW. We got WWN News involving Paul E. ESPN2. They're talking about Aaron some wrestling, but not what you might think. So we have news on that. We got all kinds of lucha stuff, Japan stuff, featuring early days of Pancrase, All Japan, New Japan on tour. But we have the World Wrestling Federation, where we have a wild night on Radio WWF, where Jim Ross uh, rants and raves about his current status in the company. He interviews Shawn Michaels, and Randy Savage goes off on Hulk Hogan in quite the fashion. And boy, it is a uh, wild night indeed. Radio WF and uh, Crush turns heel on Randy Savage on Raw two days later. So, uh, oh, we get the Savage the Crush show. Summit. We'll have quite the show next week on Between the Sheets. Yes, where we'll be joined by none of our dear friends Al Getz making his return to the show, and he'll have a book to promote. So we'll talk about that and a whole lot more next week on Between the Sheets. All right. Thanks again to John for being with us. Bix, thanks to you as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the peach state of Georgia.
that I want to live. It's my life. I can do just what I feel. It's my life. Nobody can tell me what to do. It's my life. Cause what I'm doing, I'm doing for you. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm really not so. Eagle juice is not my thing. All these strange relationships really get me down. Between the Sheets episode, Between the Sheets Patreon special edition episode number 72. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span and Bix. It's time to get back into the late 2000 groove here with WCW and their uh, prospects of being for sale. And you know, part one, we ended at an interesting spot and we're going to pick up here at part two and, uh, Looks like the trades are going to be uh, heavily involved in this one again, so it uh, should be quite the show. Well, I mean, yeah, of course they are. But <laughs> yeah, we were, what, a week or two into the WWF sto- part of the story, I guess? Yeah. Something like that. So I think we should just dive in, right? Yes. So let's do that. All right, well, Wade's got something to talk about here in the torch that's... Uh, Maybe the big sticking point in all this to WCW and WF. Viacom steps forward strong resistance to the WF turn negotiations by Wade Keller of ProWrestlingTorch.com. Just weeks after gaining rights to WF programs and the biggest TV money deal in pro wrestling history, a key source tells ProWrestlingTorch.com that Viacom has stepped forward in opposition to the WF negotiations with Turner to buy WCW. As part of Viacom's price tag for WF programming, they bought exclusive rights to WFE wrestling programs on cable. Viacom, a key source, says came out strongly against WFE and Vincent Mann signing a deal with Turner, a fierce rival of Viacom. Viacom was TNN to become a major competitor to TNT, TBS, and USA. And McMahon turned his resources towards rehabbing a competing station's top-rated yet struggling program. That would hurt TNN, Viacom apparently believes. Sources say WFE officials had hoped Viacom wouldn't be upset with WFE acquiring WCW and providing programming for Turner. Instead, they hope Viacom will see the value in gaining access to all WCW's wrestlers and a potential ratings bonanza for all wrestling programs as they built toward eventual interpromotional matches and big-name jumps between promotions. Negotiations have soured a bit in general between WF and WCW, so the Viacom move is said to be the biggest but not only roadblock to consummate a deal. Alone, Viacom's resistance might end up being enough to nix a deal. But as it is now... It's just one on a list of other struggles during the finer points of negotiations and tension between key personalities. Deal's not that, though. WF Source says negotiations are definitely continuing this week. Viacom can be persuaded that sharing WFE-owned programming would benefit them. The details that are sticking points now could be worked out, and personality clashes could be set aside in order to get a deal done that's attracted to all sides. However, the odds of WF owning WCW apparently are lower than the middle of last week, where it appeared to seem to be around 60-40 bet in favor of getting the deal done. 
And as we continue away, as search from WCW's ownership, future remains unresolved. Negotiations, though, had soured a bit in general between Dove and WCW. It's the Viacom move. It said it'd be the biggest, but only robot. Oh, I just read that. Uh, so let's find the part that I didn't read. I thought I did. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, word circulated in the last week that McMahon was acting too brash and authoritarian during negotiations with Turner executives. Huh, shocking. McMahon was dictating what he would and wouldn't accept as part of a deal. Among McMahon's demands were channel and day changes for various programs. The story going around is that Turner executives weren't thrilled with the proposals, but even less thrilled with how they were presented. Well, wait, 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 wait. He's absolutely in the right to ask for Nitro to be moved, for starters. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely he's right. And and that's the thing I was going to bring up with Viacom. I mean, I got to think and believe that Vince McMahon would not try to have shows competing against each other on the same night. Which that would be stupid. Look, we see by the time WCW is gone that it didn't really help with ratings to have just Raw, or at least without a WCW existing. But on paper, of course, you could you sh- should be able to try to sell it to Viacom as look. Now we're not going to have another wrestling show opposite us anymore. Exactly. Whereas if it's sold to anyone else, we will. Yes. At this point in time, that's the thing, because whoever would have bought WCW would have had the Turner programming. So basically, you're still in Viacom. Listen, we have to buy this to to keep our to get our deal good. We're protecting our deal with you. <laughs> it's just like so. Some of these damn people in charge have their heads so far stuck up their ass with their own little rivalries. That they, they're they too deep in the forest to the trees. Now look, they are absolutely in the right to ask Vince to buy out the exclusivity. They are. But the issue becomes that they end up raising the price so much after they, you know, at least according to Vince, from the initial price they quoted him to buy out the exclusivity. Which we'll get to later. Here's the thing. Do you think at this point in time, even though they just signed a deal with Viacom, that maybe Vince is regretting signing that deal with Viacom already? I think he's regretting the exclusivity clause. Yes. Yep. But, I mean, yeah, Viacom's stupid. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no way he would compete against them head-to-head. That would be, I mean, crazy. But, I mean, what am I to say? As we record this, I mean, NFL is going to have Monday Night Football going against head head to head against each other on, on two different channels on the Disney networks. Oh, that's a little <laughs> different. Yeah, but still, you're 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 kind of taking some ratings away from one for the other, but it all adds up in the end, I guess. Right. And it's all in the same family and network, so I guess that it doesn't really matter, does it? Right. But uh, but yeah, I mean, that the, the Viacom thing is just crazy to me. But I mean. Vince acting brash and authoritarian, that doesn't surprise me at all. No. <laughs> I mean, that's Vince man. What do you expect? <laughs> you know, and I'm sure those fo- some of those folks at Turner hadn't dealt with anybody like him, even Ted. So, no. all right. So as it stands here, Bischoff still wants in, according to people who are in contact with him. But other sources say Bischoff is far from a shoe-in if the deal falls apart. It really appears to be anybody's guess what will have WCW over the next few weeks. 
It's possible that the WFDO falls through, that Turner and Zex aren't confident in having Eric Bischoff be one of their primary program suppliers. That they may end up simply drastically downsizing WCW to a low-budget production and try to garner 2.0 cable ratings, which are respectable, with a skeleton crew of a few dozen wrestlers with contracts in the $100,000 and $600,000 range. It's also possible Turner will close down WCW completely, write off all expenses before the AOL deal is consummated, and then maybe eventually restart a promotion or pick up programming down the line from a new starter promotion if one surfaces. And that's the thing, you know, the, another thing that surprises me in all this was if that game in game with Brad Siegel and Stu Schneider, you know, was what it was. I mean, why did Brad just shut down WCW altogether before the AOL deal is done? That's a good question. Because clearly they wanted it off the books before the AOL deal was closed, if at all possible. I mean, well, no, I mean, we, well, wait, we're not thinking of the two things in, together. It's Vince can't make the deal, or at least with, at this point, the, they still want the shows on the networks. So Vince can't make the deal until that changes. Well, no. When, when, okay, so when is the, the AOL deal consummated? Uh, Mid-January. Remember, same, de- same day that the uh, Fusion deal gets announced, so January 13th. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So if they don't have a preliminary deal with Fusion in their minds, or you're thinking that's going to happen, in January, does Brad Siegel shut down WCW and then sell all sell off all the all the IP to WWF? Yes. There you go. And the other thing to remember is Jamie Ke- Kellner's not in play yet. Nope. So no, no that's, so that's the thing. And there's no poison pill in the fusion contract. So there is no reason to think they would have any desire to cancel the TV shows. Yeah. Because it doesn't seem like people there who even who didn't like wrestling ever had any issue with carrying the TV shows is that they were embarrassed to have it as part of the company. Yes. Again, that's another notch in the belt for the Jamie Kellner. I mean, this the, we're here we are talking about this in October as being a possible option that definitely could have happened before he was even involved. You know? But anyway. Uh, WCW workers didn't know who to kiss up to over the last week or two. They went from being worried about their past dealings with Bischoff to worrying about what McMahon thought of them. Not a possibility is this. They'll be sending out resumes and calling around looking for entirely new jobs. Uh, poor Terry Taylor. Ain't <laughs> <laughs> even only one. <laughs> well, the cable trade journals are covering the status of WCW's major story, but for the most part have been a week behind on the facts and rumors circulating. They reported on sticky points and negotiations, including the WF wanting to assume forthcoming revenues from past reviews, while Turner wanted to keep revenues earned but not yet received. This is something we haven't talked about. You know, if that's true, if that's true, which Dave says might not be true, um, I totally understand where, where uh, Turner's coming from. Why should we give you that money? You weren't involved with WCW at that time. Why should you reap the benefits? I mean, they're right. Yeah, why should you reap the benefits? You you had no dealings with us at this time. After a deal's made, yes, that's different. So, yeah, I totally get where they're coming from in that regard. 
if that was a, a a big issue, which we don't know. We've heard different things on that. Right, they're desperately trying to. I mean, well, here's the other thing too. I just realized it right as I started to say that. Not all the pay per view revenue goes to WCW proper anyway. It goes to Turner Home Entertainment. Exactly. <laughs> they want their money. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. So let's think about this. It. Let's say WF buys WCW and they still want to run pay-per-views. Would that be going through Turner Home Entertainment? That's an interesting question. <laughs> because they're doing the TV through Turner. Mm. Would they? Would Turner Home Entertainment be supplying the pay-per-view stuff? That's another thing. How, how do you work around that one? Hmm. So, I don't know. To hear this entire show. Support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.